Well, hey, 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 everybody, Alan Parr here, super excited. Guys, you guys have no idea how pumped up I am to have my brother, fellow YouTuber, and brother in Christ, Mike Winger, uh, who's going to be joining us today. Uh, so many of you have been asking for us to do a collaboration together, and you guys are like shocked that we YouTubers actually know each other. And uh, so uh, Mike and I got a chance to get to know each other a little while back. And uh, we've been planning this for you guys. I think you guys are going to be so um, enriched by the time that we spend together. And so uh, just super excited to have my friend and brother, Mike Winger. So you guys do me a favor and welcome our brother to the beat today. Mike, how you doing today, man? Good to have you on the, on the, uh, on the podcast. Hey, Alan, it's great to be here, man. Thank you so much for just inviting me to share. I'm excited about the topic we're talking about because this is like really, really important stuff, but it's also the kind of thing that is that is messy when you talk about, and hopefully we can do a good job and be a blessing to people. But uh, but yeah, to all of uh, Alan Parr's audience, like I imagine a lot of you guys in my audience know Alan and vice versa, because YouTube probably recommends us alongside each other, I suppose, I, I'm assuming. Yes. But it's great to, to get to uh, yeah to get to know you a bit and do some stuff with you. Alan's yeah. like a real person. I liked I liked finding that. He's like a real human being. That was nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, guys. And and that's the thing, you know, is that as you guys have heard me say, this this YouTube journey is not a competition. It's a collaboration, right? And um, I encourage everyone who's not subscribed to to Mike Winger's channel, which I can't believe that there's a whole lot of people on here that are not. Um, but if there are, then what are you waiting for? Go and uh, after this video is over, I'm going to put a link to his YouTube channel below. And uh, I would love for you to go and subscribe. He's got some amazing content, super biblical, uh, very gracious in how he answers questions and deals with very difficult topics. So uh, as I'm sure many of you already know. So guys, as you know, I am a stickler for time. I'm not going to waste your time. I love to reward those who showed up on time. So let me lay a few ground rules here before we get started. Basically, what uh, Mike and I want to do today is we want to take a close look at six major religious groups. All of these groups claim the name of Christ. If you ask them, do they believe in Jesus? They will say, yes, we believe in Jesus. But I think that we're asking the wrong question today. And by the way, guys, before I get into that, if you're watching this on the replay, timestamps will be below this video. So if you want to skip to a portion of the video that interests you most, we hope that you would not do that. Hopefully you watch the whole thing because it's going to be great. But if in the event that you're in a rush and you need to skip, the timestamps are below. Now, with that being out of the way, I think we're asking the wrong question, guys. I think too often we're asking the question, do you believe in Jesus? And a lot of times people will say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And unfortunately, there's a lot of us will that will assume that that person is a Christian because they believe in Christ. And I think I want to encourage us all to ask a different question now. Not so much do you believe in Jesus, but what do you believe about Jesus? And that, I believe, is going to help you understand what a person actually believes and whether or not they are a Christian. So what we want to do today is we want to look at these six groups and um, we're not going to tell you which ones they are. You may have some hints and ideas of which ones they are, but we're going to break them down and we're going to compare them against the biblical uh, Christian worldview or evangelical Christianity or historical Christianity. Now, I want to make something very, very clear. We are not here to judge the salvation of individual people within these groups. 
I want to make sure that's very clear. Whether somebody is a Christian or not is between them and what's going on in their heart personally and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're here to do is look at the primary beliefs of these organizations, these religious groups, and say, is what they are teaching consistent with the biblical worldview? So that is what we want to do today. Now, the last thing that I'll say is this, that please know that within all of these groups, there are variances. You meet one person, they may say, I believe a little bit, I believe this. Yes, I'm, I'm a member of this group, but I believe this, I believe that. So just understand that what we're presenting is not going to be a full uh, picture of what every single member in that group believes, but rather um, uh, really just rather overall what that that group believes and what they teach. Okay. So, uh, Mike, do you want to add anything before we jump into these six groups? You want to add to anything that we just talked about? Um, I think that's great. I'll just let everybody know we're going to cover. So I agree. Like, yeah, we're focusing on the teachings of a group and people might feel offended because they think we're talking about their grandma or their nephew or their or their friend or their neighbor. And it's like, wait a minute, we're talking about the teachings of the group. We think those teachings are impacting your grandma, your nephew, your neighbor. Right. But because we care about them, we're going to talk about these teachings. And and of course, they do impact them. Salvation is a question in this. But we're not trying to we're trying to answer that question as it relates to teachings, not individuals, because individuals are unique. But um, the uh, the thing we're going to do is cover um, <clears throat> a few specific categories for each of these groups. We'll talk about their attitude towards Jesus, their attitude towards salvation, their attitude towards like spiritual authority. Where's the authority for the things that they believe? And then we'll talk about how to approach them along with, you know, like when you when you talk to the individuals who are part of the group. And we'll also get into like um, miscellaneous things that are just uniquely interesting and worth knowing about the different groups as well. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for filling that in, guys. So. Guys, uh, I'm excited to get in, but before we get in, we always want to start with prayer because we want to make sure the Lord Jesus and uh, the Holy Spirit who lives within us guides us in this conversation. And guys, we do have a moderator here today, so please keep the comments respectful and kind because if not, unfortunately, we're going to have to we're going to have to boot you out, okay? Because we're all believers, hopefully here. Uh, if not, um, this is a Christian. Um, uh, channel. And so we want to make sure that we always represent Christ in everything that we do. So let's pray and let's jump right in, guys. we got a whole lot of stuff to cover and we want to leave time for your questions at the end as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We give you honor, praise, and glory. I thank you for my brother, Mike. Thank you for all the hard work that he puts into his channel and to his ministry. I thank you for all those who are here. Um, Lord, I pray that you would guide our conversation, that your spirit would lead us and season our words with grace and truth and love, and most importantly, that we would properly represent you and everything that we do, as well as properly representing the groups that we will discuss today. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Amen. 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 All right, guys. So uh, we're going to tag team. We're going to tag team. I'm going to take number one. Mike's going to take number two. I'm going to come back with number three. Mike's going to take number four. I'm going to take number five. And then Mike's taking number six. And... I forgot to mention this, guys. Stay tuned to the end because number six is the group that we are most concerned and most worried about out of all six of the groups that we're going to talk about. All right. So with all of that being said, we are going to start off with group number one. And group number one, guys, is the Mormon church. 
the Mormon church. Now, I've got some slides for the ones that I'm going to do, but Mike's such a great communicator. He's just going to go off the cuff. He doesn't need any slides. I need my slides to keep me going. So uh, I'm going to start off with the Mormon church. That's the reason. I'm so great. <laughs> Wait, well, that yeah, we're going to jump in with some slides, guys, because it's, it's going to help you. And hopefully you can read some things that are on the screen as well. Now, first and foremost, we're not going to be able to do a full out, you know, uh, teaching about all six of these groups. Both Mike and I have some other you know videos on our channels about all of these groups for the most part. So, um, you know, I've got two videos on my channel about the Mormon church. Uh, one was a interview that I just recently did with a member, uh, a former member of the of the Mormon Church. His name is Michael Wilder. If you haven't caught that, I'm gonna put a link in the description. But if you want a fuller understanding of what I'm gonna talk about, feel free to check those videos out. So let's jump in the Mormon Church. First and foremost, guys, what do the Mormons believe about divine authority? So the question is, what, where are they getting their beliefs from as it relates to? Uh, divine, the divine. Well, they have four, four doctor. Excuse me, four uh, sources of of truth, rather not biblical truth, but four sources of truth that they get their divine authority from. First is obviously the Book of Mormon, and then they have another which is called the Doctrines and Covenants, which I'll talk about in just a moment. And then they have the Pearl of Great Price, and then they have the Bible. Now, not necessarily in that order, but if they were to rank them, they would probably say that the Book of Mormon. Um, is the one that trumps or supersedes all of the other ones. And so uh, essentially, guys, yes, they believe in the Bible as long as it does not deviate from the Book of Mormon or the things that they believe have been revealed through uh, Joseph Smith, who um, was their founder. And so um, we want to make sure that we understand. As a matter of fact, Joseph Smith has a Bible where... Uh, he has translated that, and I think, don't quote me on this, but there's about a thousand different, over a thousand different places where he had to adjust the wording of the Bible because it wasn't fitting with the theological positions of the Mormon church. So uh, that's first and foremost, is that they have four different uh, sources of divine truth. But not only that, what do Mormons believe about humanity? And this is super important, guys. And what you're going to start to see is how the Mormon church while we respect them as individuals, they are deviating significantly from the evangelical Christian worldview. Uh, first of all, Latter-day Saints believe that all men and women ever to be born, including Jesus Christ. Now, notice these are not my words. These words are coming from their website. So before you call me a heretic, I didn't, I didn't say Jesus was born. These words are coming from their website. And so they're saying, hey, all men... All women who were born, and notice they lump Jesus into the group of people who were born because they believe that Jesus was a created being. A little bit more about that later. They say that they uh, we all lived with God as his spirit children before this life. And so the idea here is this is a huge divert, uh, um, deviation from the Christian worldview because they believe that we existed uh, immortally or we have a pre-mortal existence with God that our existence didn't just start when we were born, that we have always been existing with God throughout eternity past, and then we came to being, so to speak, uh, in human form. So that is very different than what the Bible teaches about uh, humanity. 
Now, what do they believe about God? Now, this is very interesting, and you'll see that they deviate significantly from the evangelical worldview. Mormons believe that God was once a man like us who existed on another planet. Now, already we're in trouble, okay? We're already in trouble because that's not what the Bible teaches. And through obedience, he progressed into being the God of his own planet. Therefore, you and I can also become gods of our own planet as well and progress to being a god through obedience. As a matter of fact, the Mormons actually have a saying. It says this, as man now is, God once was. Did you catch that? As man now is, human flesh, form, flesh and blood, God once was, right? So already the idea that this is the same God of the Christian worldview is a huge deviation because the Bible does not teach that God uh, existed in the form of a man, that he progressed into his godness, that he existed on some other planet. And so all of these things are getting from some of their other sources, like the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. All right. Now, what do they believe about Jesus? Well, several things that are different from the biblical worldview. Mormons believe that Jesus is a created being. They also believe that Jesus is the elder brother or the spirit brother of Lucifer. So there's a problem right there because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that Lucifer is a created angel, uh, one of God's most beautiful created angels, right? But Jesus is not in the same category at all with the angels, right? He is God in human flesh. He's the second member of the Godhead. So to even say that he and Lucifer are related in any way deviates from the Christian worldview. Finally, they believe that Jesus was a married man. None of these three pictures of Jesus are consistent with the biblical revelation of Christ, right? So already we see that they have different um Beliefs in terms of divine authority, different beliefs about God, as well as different beliefs about Christ. Now, what do they believe about the Trinity? Now, this is also coming from one of their sacred documents, the Doctrines and Covenants. You can see that on the screen. It says this in their in their Doctrine of Covenants 130.22. Like most Christians, now notice right there, they are they are they are um, grouping themselves in as Christians because they believe they are Christians. So they're saying, like most Christians, we as Christians, right, Latter-day Saints believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the creator of the world. Okay, good. So far, I'm feeling good about that. But let's keep going. However, Latter-day Saints hold the unique belief that God the Father and Jesus Christ are two distinct beings. So already we're, we're in trouble because that's not what the Bible teaches. Latter-day Saints believe that God and Jesus Christ are wholly united in their perfect love for us, meaning they love us, they're united in that, but that each is a distinct personage with his own perfect glorified body. Now that's a whole nother issue because the Bible says that God is spirit, right? God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship in the spirit and truth. It doesn't describe God as having a body or a glorified body, right? So you can, what we're trying to do today, guys, is we're trying to make sure that anything that you hear, 
that you base it and compare it off of what does the Bible say about these things so you can be under, uh, discerning when you hear something that is off. Okay, now let's keep going. What do Mormons believe about salvation? Mormons do not believe that their salvation is guaranteed. They believe that we progress into our godhood in the same way that God progressed to being the God of planet Earth. And so this very well may be why a lot of Mormons or Mormons in general, they, they feel like they have to work and continue to do all of these things to be baptized in the Mormon church, so on and so forth, just so they can hopefully one day uh, become a God of their own planet. A little bit more about that. First, uh, okay, so let me go back. Um, I actually had a, a slide, but I can't remember. I must have gotten it off somewhere. But basically, one of the slides, guys, it's from Nephi. 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. And in their Book of Mormon, it says something to the effect of, we are saved by grace after we have done all that we can. So when you read that, you can see that that contradicts Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says we're saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So, guys, um, that's the first group that I wanted to cover today is the Mormon church. Now, we could say a whole lot more about them, but um, that's the idea, guys, that you can clearly see that the things that are being taught in the Mormon church are not consistent with the scriptures. And therefore, as much as we may love them as people, we would have to, or at least let me not say we, I would have to, I can't speak for Mike. And by the way, we may or may not see everything eye to eye today, but that's okay. Um, I would have to place the Mormon church in the category of being a cult because there's too many things that differ from the picture of uh, the, what the Bible reveals is Christian doctrine. Okay. So, uh, Mike, uh, do you want to um, add anything to that? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I would wholeheartedly agree. So Mormonism, uh, and currently, so I don't know if you know this, Alan, the church is trying to move away from the title Mormon. Like they're officially trying to stop using that title and refer to themselves as LDS. Now, they're the ones that called themselves Mormons in the past. Um, but it's a slow shift over time. When they first started, when 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 Joseph Smith started, they said all other Christians are apostate and all the, and here's a quote from them, all denominations are an abomination and they're the only ones that have the truth. But slowly over time, they started even calling themselves Christians as you have in the quote you gave, right? They're like, we're Christians too. And now they want to drop the Mormon title, say they're LDS, because I feel like it's a new strategy. It used to be um, stand out as we're, we're the righteous, right, true church and all others are apostate. And now it's, hey, we're just like another group of Christians and you should all accept us. And so they'll try to avoid in conversations a lot of these issues that you're bringing up. And so I've heard people respond to like, hey, we're, you know, you can become a God when you die. You know what? Yeah, we know that that might be in the doctrine, but we don't emphasize that. That's right. You know, and that'll be the strategy is like, we're not going to defend the doctrine. We're just going to de-emphasize it to try to sort of blend in. And um, in a part of me is happy because that maybe that means that, you know, Mormonism might be shifting away from bad doctrine in some areas. But more, I think it's a, a manipulative maneuver to try to um, avoid dealing with what are the most obvious errors in teaching. Yeah. What, now, what do you recommend for people as far as like reaching out to a Mormon? Like if, you know, if they approach an, an LDS person, what would you suggest? 
Yeah. Um, you know, well, first of all, I would say, guys, you know, and, and some of this is going to overlap no matter what group that you are trying to engage with. But, um, you know, the, the main thing is to really show them ultimately that you that you love them. You don't want to come up across them as if you're judging them in any way. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that's helped me quite a bit was whenever I listened to Michael Wilder's testimony and the way he was pulled out of Mormonism is just simply somebody sat down with him and said, hey, look, I challenge you to read the New Testament, to read the New Testament and ask yourself a very simple question. Would you come to the conclusion that Jesus is who you say he is and God is who he says he is and salvation is what you say it is just by simply reading the New Testament and really challenge them and say, hey, I'll read it with you or whatnot and go on that journey with them if they're willing to. And uh, and continue to pray for them as well. What about you, Mike? What would you uh, What would you recommend for tips for um, uh, Mormonism? Or I think that's our, a great tip for somebody. LDS. Yeah, or LDS. Either way, <laughs> I think it's a great tip for somebody who's digging into it and they're talking to somebody. Is just get them to scripture. Get them to scripture. Get them to where they have to validate their views on through scripture and make sure that they're doing it in context. That's why reading the whole New Testament is beautiful because you can't just rip a verse out of context and abuse it. You're reading the whole book. Um, the other thing that you, I might recommend is uh, to become very familiar with maybe one of the strong reasons to reject Mormonism or LDS teaching, like say um, J Joseph Smith trying to write himself into Genesis chapter 50. He like he like rewrote and added to the end of Genesis a prophecy about himself. Mm -hmm. And this is all on the record. So there's, there's no denying it or where he obviously you know, pretended to translate the book of Abraham, which they consider to be part of their scripture as well. Um, and uh, it's in along with the Pearl of Great Price. And like if you if you get the details on this and you get the knowledge, then you can introduce them to it. But but I would say don't just casually study one of these. Pick one issue on, on LDS, go deep on it and be ready to really rationally discuss it with someone. So you don't just have like the first set of talking points. You really understand the whole conversation. And yeah. it's it's homework, but it's worth it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Awesome. Well, Mike, uh, do you want to keep this thing going and uh, start with the second group uh, that we're right. talking about today? Second of six, guys. And if you're just joining us, remember, we're dealing with six different groups. And group number six is the one we're concerned about the most. So stay tuned with us. All right. So, Mike, take it away, man. All right. Group number two, I've spent many, many hours dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses um, individually from the time I was like a teenager and they're witnessing to me and I even struck up kind of a friendship with the JW as he was coming back to my house, like not even when he was officially out witnessing <laughs> in his street clothes, even, you know, um, to even producing lots of video content, many hours of content. But let me just do this like quick drink from the fire hydrant, drive by just shooting of information about Jehovah's Witnesses. That's probably a horrible analogy to use. But um, their attitude towards Jesus, we'll start with that. Jehovah's Witnesses are taught that Jesus is not God right from all eternity who's God with us like the Mormons they think that he's a created being but a different being than the Mormons would say they think that Jesus is Michael the archangel so when the Bible talks about Michael that is Jesus and now there are some Christians who real Christians who legitimately they they think that Jesus is Michael the archangel but they don't think he's just Michael they think Michael is like a Christophany okay and I disagree with that theology I think it's I think it's incorrect personally but it doesn't deny the deity of Christ the way Jehovah's Witnesses do. They actually teach that Jesus is a created being. He didn't always exist. He was created by God, and he was the first created being, and then everything else was made through him in some fashion. 
They also would teach, say, that Jesus died on, the, on not a cross, but on a torture stake. And that's how their translation puts it. And that he was not bodily resurrected. Did you hear that? Jesus was not bodily resurrected. That's really key. So Jesus isn't God. He's a creative being. He's Michael the Archangel uh, who became a man. And there's just tons in scripture that talks about this. Hebrews 1 totally refutes the idea that Jesus is an angelic being. Colossians 1, it says that everything was made through Jesus. Everything. Not just some things, but everything was made through Jesus, which would mean he couldn't, he wasn't made, right? Because everything that was made was made through him. In John 1, it says everything, again, everything that was made was made through him. And apart from him, nothing was made that was made, which is a pretty strong case for Jesus is not the first created being, which is why in the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation, which I got, I have like five versions of it, but here's one of them. <laughs> and in their own version of the Bible, they changed the Bible in exactly the places that teach the truth about the deity of Christ and him as creator. They literally have made a, a bad, and it's universally known as scholars. They know this is not a good translation, um, but they've made this translation to try to support their theology. So they think Michael became Jesus. Um, and one of the verses, I'll give you an example for you guys might be interested. One of the verses they'll quote for this is 1 Thessalonians 4.16. This is a passage of scripture that talks about the, the, the return of Christ, the second coming. And it says, the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They say, well, it's speaking of Jesus. I agree. And they say, well, if Jesus comes with the voice of an archangel, as 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, then he must be an archangel. Um, there are a few problems with this. Uh, one of them is that if Jesus is Michael the archangel and he's a unique being, which Jehovah's Witnesses would teach, why is it just the voice of an archangel, like he's one of many, if he's the if he's supposed to be singular? But also, it also says he comes not just with the voice of an archangel, but the scripture says he comes with the sound of a trumpet in the very next phrase of that sentence. Does that make Jesus a trumpet? No, <laughs> but by, by their logic, Jesus have to be, he's archangel, he's also a giant trumpet, and that doesn't make any sense. Um, then, of course, there's the clear teachings that Jesus is not an angel in Hebrews 1 and in the other places in Scripture where he is the creator of all. They say Jesus did not rise bodily. Instead, you might ask, well, what happened to the body of Jesus? Well, in Jehovah's Witness teaching, the body of Jesus, it went into the tomb and then dissolved. And that's why the tomb was empty. They went to find it and God had like disintegrated the body of Jesus. Then when Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected with a spirit body. It's difficult to ask people to explain what a spirit body is. This is similar to Mormonism, though. They do have a something called a spirit body, but they won't define it very well. So it's a little tough to talk about. But in studies in the scriptures, <clears throat> this is a Jehovah's Witness source, in volume five, page 454 of studies in the scriptures, they say the man Jesus is dead, forever dead. You cannot consider yourself Christian if you can make a statement like that. That's a denial of the central belief in the resurrection of Christ. First Corinthians 15 talks about that. The Gospels even show that Jesus, he, this is kind of cool. It, it's like God knows every false religious way of twisting Christianity. And he put in the scriptures all the refutations we would ever need. So in the Gospels, when Jesus appears to Thomas, he specifically tells him, look, it's I, flesh and blood. And then he says, touch your hand and put it in the nail marks in my hand and in my side. What Jesus calls those marks is the nail marks, meaning that the body that was on the cross that got nailed, these are the marks from that body, which means scripture is teaching us Jesus rose with the same body that he died with. That's pretty significant. Um, however, they would say, and this is on jw.org, I'm going to quote them here. 
Jesus was resurrected with a spirit body, so he comes as a spirit creature, not in the flesh. And that would direct contradiction with scripture and essential Christian truth. There's other things about Jesus they would teach. Um, for instance, we, we look forward to the second coming of Christ. They teach that Jesus already did show up. His coming already came, and he had an invisible return in 1914. Now, historically, the, the reason they got to this is interesting. They were predicting this sort of like Armageddon to happen in 1914, um, you know, the end of the world. It didn't happen. So then they kind of backtracked and said, well, Jesus returned invisibly. So his rule on earth began, but it's invisible. And it's really now he's ruling from the Watchtower organization secretly. But Matthew 24, Jesus specifically warns, if anybody tells you that the Christ has returned and he's in some secret room, don't believe them because every eye will see him, everyone. So again, scripture was refuting Jehovah's Witness teaching before it had been invented. It's, it's kind of amazing, the foreknowledge of God there. Let's talk about salvation though. Um, so Jehovah's Witness teaching about salvation, the things that these people are taught, and I and my heart goes out to Jehovah's Witnesses, I care for them, but I, I, I hate the things they're taught because they're not true. There are four requirements for salvation, and it's not just Jesus. Let me give you a quote. This is from Studies in the Scriptures. This is an authoritative source for them. Page 150, volume one. The ransom for all given by the man, Christ Jesus, does not give or guarantee everlasting life or blessing to any man. See, Jesus is not enough. This is a really important teaching for them. So there's four requirements. You have to, number one, take in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. But what they mean is the knowledge that Jesus is a created being whose body dissolved in the grave, who did not physically rise. That's the false. So you have to take in a false Christ as part of their salvation rules. Number two, you have to obey God's laws, which means you have works. You have to perform to earn your salvation. This is when you reach out to Jehovah's Witnesses, you can realize they're laboring under a work system and the freedom and the peace and the, the salve for our weary souls comes through realizing the gospel of grace. And that, that's the number one thing we want to present to them. Number three, you have to belong to Jehovah's Witnesses organ, organization. You have to become a JW. If you're not officially part of the JWs, you don't have salvation. Now, imagine if you're, so I'm part of Calvary Chapel churches. Imagine if I was teaching, guys, if you're not part of Calvary Chapel, you're going to hell. <laughs> that alone is enough of a red flag to know that you don't want to be part of Calvary Chapel at that point. Um, yeah, you have to actually belong to their organization. And they use various scriptures to try to support this, but they're all radically out of context. So um, number four, I'll give you number four now, loyalty. Loyalty is required. Now, loyalty is a pretty generic thing to say. You got to be loyal. But what they mean and where they measure loyalty, one of the number one ways they measure it is that you're promoting the JW organization by going door to door or in some way giving out magazines and JW material. This is why Jehovah's Witnesses are going door to door. It's part of the salvation deal for them. You're required to go at least an hour a month to be considered an active publisher. And if you're not an active publisher, if you're an inactive publisher, you're in danger that when Armageddon comes around the corner, you may, you may suffer as a result. You might be outside. So this, this is um, very much a workspace thing, very much a workspace thing. And you can kind of see this when you see them go door to door. And, and my neighborhood, I noticed this, where they would, um, everywhere I've lived, I've noticed this, that Jehovah's Witnesses would often walk really slow door to door. And I always thought that was so weird because I've witnessed <laughs> I've gone witnessing door to door. I've got tracks and I'm thinking I got two hours, right? And I I hit like probably 20 times as many houses right. as they do because I'm in a hurry. Hour. Huh? They got to get through that hour. 
<laughs> yeah, and and I and so when I actually interviewed some former JWs, they told me that this was this wasn't just my observation. This was like a well-known fact, and they call it the pioneer plod. <laughs> That's like the nickname they have for it because they're considered pioneers going out, and they call it a pioneer plod, where you just like walk real nice and slow, so you don't have to because it's uncomfortable to encounter people on their door, and 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 the JWs get all kinds of mistreatment and rude behavior from people um, that is wrong, and I understand why they would have a hard time with it. All right, let's talk about authority. That's salvation. Jehovah's Witness beliefs about authority. They say the Bible's their authority, but there's a big problem, and that is that they have a butchered Bible translation, and they become conspiratorial that all other Bible translations are not trustworthy. So when you show them a verse that refutes their theology, the immediate thought is, oh, but that's been changed, because they trust the organization. They instead of having the Bible ultimately as their authority, the real authority is what's called the governing body. And what you have to understand about the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's not just a name given to people who have shared beliefs, but rather it's actually a governmental group. And they're run by the governing body, which is eight men who live in New York City. They, they To quote them, they formulate doctrine, they oversee publishing, and they send out these two magazines. You've seen them on your doorstep, the Watchtower and the Awake magazine. And one day, this is Jehovah's Witness beliefs, one day when judgment comes, your survival is going to depend on following the instructions of these eight guys in New York. Like your literal earthly survival will depend on it. Judgment will come and you have to be ready at the drop of a hat to just go do whatever they say. Let me quote some sources on this because I want people to know this is this is not me making, I'm not trying to rip on JWs. I wish the theology was better than this, right? So from Watchtower 2013, July 15th, page 20. The faithful slave, and that's a nickname they have for their own organization, and they're really referring to the to the eight men in New York. The faithful slave is the channel through which Jesus is feeding his true followers in this time of the end. It is vital that we recognize the faithful slave. Our spiritual health and our relationship with God depend on this channel. Obedience to these men determines your salvation. Then we have um, from JW.org on the 10th of November, 2012, which says the faithful and discreet slave was appointed over Jesus's domestics in 1919. That means the church. The slave is the small composite group of anointed brothers serving at world headquarters. That's eight guys in New York during Christ's presence. That's because they believe Jesus is invisibly present somehow with them who are directly involved in preparing and dispensing spiritual food. When this group work together as the governing body, they act as the faithful and discreet slave. Now, this has been an evolution over time. Originally, the faithful and discreet slave was all the Jehovah's Witnesses. Then it became the leadership, just the general leadership organization. Then it became the eight guys, which is why in 2012, it's eight guys in New York, you go back 60 years, it's more of a group thing. So they've um, slowly amassed more power and control over time. Let me give you a couple other things, um, miscellaneous other stuff. This, organ this organization, this religion's only existed since about the 1870s. That was when it was first founded. So it's pretty new, kind of like LDS church. It's actually not just a religious belief. It's an insulated, and this is key, it's an insulated social community. This is the biggest thing with dealing with JWs is realizing they're part of an insulated social community. They're told never Google Jehovah's Witnesses. They're told this from their leaders. Don't ever Google our group. 
that's, I mean, from our perspective, oh, you think, well, that's creepy, but I want you to understand the suspicion this creates because they're going to look at you guys as you try to witness to them with all this suspicion. I've, I've got JWs telling me on my videos, Mike, you're, you're an apostate. I'm sure you're a secretly an apostate JW. And so I, so I can just ignore you and not listen to you and, and you're, you're a liar. Um, but that's, it's not that they're trying to be mean. It's that they've been, paranoia has been created in them towards everybody. So here's some conspiratorial things that they're being told. Um, if you do have to research, only use jw.org, right, or other watchtower websites for research. That's, I mean, that's not really research, right? Research, which means always check our source, what we say. That's your research. <laughs> that's not really research. Um, they're, they believe that all Christianity has been apostate since the second century. They believe that the Bible has been been butchered and that they've fixed it with their New World Translation. All other translations are suspect. They believe the Holy Spirit is God's active force. He's impersonal. That's just a random thing. They believe the Trinity is pagan. They believe that you need to call God Jehovah or else. They believe that birthday celebrations are pagan. Military service is pagan. Christmas is pagan. Easter is pagan. You all are pagan. And that's why we can't trust you. So it creates this insulated social community. So that breaking through that has to do with a lot of trying to create goodwill between you and a Jehovah's Witness person where they realize like, I'm not here to attack you, right? I'm trying to share what I think is good and wonderful truth with you. And a lot of reaching them, how to approach them is going to be like getting them to question the governing body because so much of what they believe is depending on just trusting those guys. So I would recommend a few things. Use JW sources. What I've held up earlier, this is a kingdom interlinear. I know a little bit of Greek. And so I'm able to actually use this. It has the Greek alongside with their translation. And I can show in their own works where they've mistranslated the Bible. And then I can pull up to the front and I can say, and I've done this before. I, you know, I, I share this with, a, with Jehovah's Witnesses. They go, well, that's not, that's not Watchtower literature. So they were going to ignore everything I said. And I said, oh, no, but it is. Look, this is Watchtowers published by you guys. And now he was like, oh, you see this, this, the suspect attitude towards everyone other than the watchtower means that you, even if it looks like this proves Jehovah's witness teaching wrong, we can ignore it because it's not from our own sources. So I say, use their own sources whenever possible. If you want to prove the deity of Jesus, prove it from their new world translation. There are still passages that do that. If you want to talk about weird beliefs or problems, go to, go to watchtower literature. And now it's easier than ever. They actually have a uh, a phone app. I got my phone over here somewhere. Uh, that it's it's JW um, Library. That's the name of the app, and you can access the interlinear for free. This thing used to be hard to get. And I had to like hunt for it, you know. So yeah, um, I'd also recommend you guys stick to one issue, study it well, be ready, and do not let them change the subject when you start nailing them down on a problem with the theology. Don't just say, "Hey, can we come back to that later?" I, I want to finish this talk first, and for this, I have hours and hours of free content on my, on my YouTube channel. Like I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I've spent a lot of time prepping this. I have a whole video on how to reach Jehovah's Witnesses with strategies and stuff. But number one is going to be sh like, like what you said, Alan, show them love. They're used to being mistreated. They're suspicious of outsiders. You got to break through that with not fake love, right? Genuine compassion and care for them as human beings. Yeah. What do you think, Alan? You got anything to add or, or take well, away maybe? <laughs> no. First of all, thank you for that thorough reply, guys. And um, also, I'm going to ask Mike to send me some links uh, or I'll try to uh, snag them uh, from his YouTube channel. Um, you know, just yeah. the work that he's done. Because like I said, we're not going to be able to cover everything here. But if you're really serious about really trying to reach these six groups, and that was the second group that we talked about. If you're just coming in, we already talked about the Mormon, uh, well, the Mormon church, which uh, the latter church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
And now uh, Mike gave us a good thorough um, uh, explanation on Jehovah's Witnesses. But if you're really wanting to go deeper, then both of us have some resources. I'm going to try to link all the videos that we have to both of our channels below um, in the description. Uh, but also, Mike, uh, if you want to quickly comment on this one, and I actually have a video on my channel about this specific topic, but what are your thoughts on their idea that only 144,000 people are going to go to heaven? Yeah, so this is really, really involved, but I'll give the yeah. super short summary, right? Originally, they teach in Revelation, the 144,000, these are like the only saved people, period. But as their numbers grew, you know, they're going to go to heaven. They're like, well, we got more than 144,000, so we got to explain We're what done. happens to the rest of our followers. <laughs> so then they said, okay, the 144,000, they're the ones that go to heaven and the rest of us live on paradise earth. So they separate our eternal future destinies into two locations. One is heaven and you're kind of without a body. You're bodiless in heaven. And the, the rest of them, most of the Jehovah's Witnesses think they'll live on paradise earth. And now they're told like, you don't want to be one of the 144. You get no body. You want to live on paradise earth. Now in Revelation, the 144,000 are just 144,000 Jewish people, right? That are, they're not the only people saved. They're not the only ones who experience heaven or something. And then heaven, when it does come, it comes to earth, right? The new heavens and new earth meet. There isn't paradise earth and then heaven, a different location. Like heaven and earth meet, man. Jerusalem comes down, man. That's the whole consummation of glorious relationship with God and each other. So yeah, those are the... Um, I guess that's the short version. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys, this is awesome. Hopefully you guys are getting some value out of this. And uh, so we're going to now move on, guys, to group number three. And I'm going to uh, piggyback off of that. And group number three, guys, is uh, the Hebrew Israelites. The Hebrew Israelites. Now, um, you may have heard of them as the black Hebrew Israelites. But just so you know that they that's a derogatory term. They, they don't they don't associate with the black Hebrew. It's Hebrew Israelites because they don't they don't believe that it has to do with their ethnicity or the color of their skin or anything like that. So um, I'm going to I'm going to try my best to kind of shorten this one uh, because there's a lot of stuff that we want to talk about as it relates to this. And the first thing, guys, that I'm going to say about the Hebrew Israelites is that they're not monolithic, all right? They're not monolithic, which basically means that with each group that you meet, there's variances. There's all sorts of different groups that you're going to meet, camps of people that you're going to meet. And I'm going to give you a few of them here. So just know that when you're talking to somebody who is a Hebrew Israelite, and I'm going to say this later when I talk about the tips on how to really reach them, the first thing that you had better figure out before you make an assumption about what this person's view is or their beliefs is what camp are they coming from and what sect of Hebrew Israelites are they coming from? So uh, let me just give you a few different um, groups in terms of what they believe about divine authority. All right. Now, this is really this group is really, really uh, they're They're hard to pin down. Uh, because there's so many different beliefs. But first and foremost, you have the groups that are the Torah only. So you're going to have some groups out there where the only five books of the Bible that they um, believe is divine truth is just the Torah. That's it. First five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And the rest of it you can throw out. The rest of it, is, there's no real value from it. Okay, So you're going to have those people that are in the Hebrew Israelite camp. And then you also have people who are going to subscribe to the whole Bible, but you're also adding on the Apocrypha. 
So you have the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Apocrypha, all right? So that's another camp of people. So you already can see why it's important for you, first and foremost, to figure out who am I talking to and which camp are they in? Because if you just assume that, okay, this person only believes in the Torah, you're going to get into some deep waters where they're going to say, no, no, what are you talking about? You're misrepresenting me. We believe in the whole Bible, right? So you got to make sure you know where you're coming from. And then the third thing is uh, some of them believe in the Bible, right? Now, once again, how they interpret the Bible, as we're going to see in just a moment, is very different oftentimes than how we would interpret it. But some will, will say, okay, no, we are of the camp where we're Hebrew Christians and we believe in the entire Bible, no Apocrypha, same Bible that you believe. Okay, so that's another camp. And the fourth camp, and this is the one I want to talk about for just a moment, is Old Testament and New Testament, but no Paul, Not, no Paul's letters, right? We don't, we don't believe in Paul's letters. And you have to understand the, the ideology behind this. And we're, we're going to get into this in just a second. But the idea is this. Many, many Hebrew Israelites in this camp will deny the divine authority of Paul's letters because they believe that white slave owners would utilize certain passages in Paul's letters as, uh, I guess, as a proof text or um, establishing the right to enslave or to, uh, to enslave people, right? To enslave Africans, right? So whenever the transatlantic uh, slave trade, which we're going to get into in just a moment. And so they believe that, hey, Paul teaches that, you know, slaves should obey their masters and this and that and the other. So we don't believe that Paul is inspired by God. So you have that camp, all right? You have that camp as well. Now, another one as well, and, and basically all of these camps do have one thing in common. They're pretty much all King James only. So if you're ever going to talk to a Hebrew Israelite, just know that more than likely they're going to be quoting the King James, and that's it. Uh, another thing that you want to think about is this is so important. They stress a strict adherence to the Old Testament law, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment. That is their thing. That is their go-to because once again, Hebrew Israelites. So they're still trying to, uh, trying to associate themselves with the religious uh, system, if you will, of the Hebrew culture. All right. So uh, the strict adherence to the Old Testament law. And then the last thing I'll say about their divine authority is that you need to be very careful whenever you talk to them, which we'll talk about in just a moment, because they are very, very well studied in the Old Testament law. So if you're not, if you're not up on your Old Testament law, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in terms of how you interact with them. You may want to strongly consider whether you want to get into a discussion with them, because I'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, let's get into some good stuff here about them. What are some of their beliefs? Now, this gets very, very interesting, and hopefully you'll see after I go through this how easy it is for cults to emerge and how they can take certain parts of the Bible and draw out a theology that is from a complete mis misinterpretation of it. So here's the idea, guys. Hebrew Israelites believe that some people of color are the lost tribes of Israel. And they primarily derive this from a misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 28. Now, 
I'm going to read a couple of scriptures from here just so that you can see how they twist them and how they misunderstand them. And you can hopefully get an idea of how they come to the conclusion that they, African people, people of color, are the lost tribes of Israel. Okay, so I'm reading from the King James. I don't normally always, but I'm going to read from the King James so you can see how they're going to get it. So Deuteronomy 28:41, it says this, Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Now, let me explain and give you the, the, the breakdown. Deuteronomy 28 is a chapter where God, through the prophet Moses, is telling his people, you have a choice, blessings or cursings. If you do what is right and you follow God, these blessings will follow you. But if you disobey God, then you can expect these curses to follow you. What the Hebrew Israelite does is that they read this passage of scripture. Then they look at the black context, the African context of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade, and they read that context or that experience, I want to make it clear, back into the text, and they say that Deuteronomy 28 is not prophesying this to the nation of Israel. No, Deuteronomy 28 is prophesying all of these things about African people, right? So do, now let's read it through their lens again. They, thou, thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Doesn't that sound like the transatlantic slave trade and this the 400 years of slavery that African people were taken from Africa, brought over against our will, sons and daughters, we have them, but we can't enjoy them because sons and daughters and families were separated from one another when we went into what? Captivity or bondage or slavery. So they will they will look at the text in Deuteronomy 28 and say, this is a prophecy about us, about African people, not the nation of Israel. Well, the nation of Israel, but we are the nation of Israel. We are the true tribes of Israel. We're the lost tribes of Israel. Let's keep going, all right? Deuteronomy 28, 64 and 65. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from the one end of the earth, even until the other, and to the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. So they'll look at verses like this and say, you know what? Weren't we as Africans scattered among all the people from one end of the earth, Africa, to the other, right? America, right? So this must be referring to us. We are the true tribes of Israel. We are the lost tribes of Israel, right? So that's why they call themselves Hebrew Israelites. Now I'll go to this in just a second. Let me go to another one. And among these nations, now watch this, thou shalt find no ease. Was it easy to be in slavery as an African person in 400 years? No, it wasn't. These verses, they will claim, are talking about the plight and the experience of African people and not the nation of Israel. Now, let me backtrack. We know as evangelical Christians that this is talking about the 
Babylonian captivity where God allowed his chosen people to be taken away to Babylon for 70 years of captivity and then God allowed them to return to their land. That's how we believe these verses were fulfilled in prophecy. The, the Hebrew Israelite says, no, no, no. This wasn't talking about the biblical uh, uh, nation of Israel. This is talking about the African people, right? Let's keep going. But the Lord, okay. Among these nations thou shalt find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. Were we resting in, in, uh, in slavery? No, we were picking cotton, right? So, but the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sorrow of mind. Do you hear this? This all sounds like everything that Africans uh, experience in slavery. No ease of life, no rest, trembling heart, scared, failing of eyes, sorrow of mind. Here we go. And then the uh, another one. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee. You will doubt whether you'll even live again. And thou shalt fear day and night and shalt have none assurance of your life. You won't even be assured that you're going to live as a slave. See, so they read back in the black context into the scriptures and say, this is prophesying about us. And then perhaps the strongest one, which, and we'll keep this in a minimum. I don't want to go too long here, but the strongest verse that they'll look at is Deuteronomy 28, 68. This is one of them, that Revelation 2, 9. Um, and it says this. And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I spake unto thee. Now, a Hebrew Israelite will translate the word Egypt as bondage. They won't say this refers to the actual place of Egypt on the map. They'll say it really represents bondage. So let's read it from their perspective. The Lord shall bring African people into bondage to America with ships. That's how we got there, transatlantic slave uh, slave trade. By the way, thou shalt see it no more again, and that there you shall be sold unto your enemies. That's what we were. We were sold, right, uh, unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Now, I don't know how they interpret the last part. But the point is this, guys. I want you to see that this is how they take verses out of context, and this is how cults get started, okay? Now, we got a lot to cover here, so let me just keep going here. What are some of their other beliefs? Well, because of this, there's some extremist groups that believe that Jews, and they're not the real children of Israel. No, no, no. We are Hebrew Israelites. We are the, we are the true tribes of Israel. But they believe that, some, that the Jews are just usurping their right to be God's chosen people. And therefore, they are anti-Semitic. Now, I need to explain this because I don't want to get in too, too much trouble with the Hebrew Israelites. Not every Hebrew Israelite is an anti-Semitic. Uh, anti I'm talking about some of the extremist groups. The extremist groups. There's some extremist groups that are anti-Semitic. And so you have to understand that. Why? Because they believe that Jews are stealing their, their identity, if you will. Right? So that's the idea. Now, um, some extremist groups believe that white people, sorry, all my white for brothers and sisters, but they believe that white people are deceiving people like me, people of color, with a whitewashed version of Christianity. And therefore, white people cannot be descendants of Israel. Excuse me, white people cannot be descendants of Israel and therefore are evil and cannot be saved, right? And so 
Once again, guys, this is not every Hebrew Israelite that you will meet, but some of the extremists, which is why I put it in red bold, some of the extreme groups that you may see on YouTube and things of that nature, they subscribe to this idea that white people are evil, they enslave black people, and then their punishment for enslaving African people is that they are going to be punished in the afterlife and they cannot be saved because of what they've done to African people. All right. So that is uh, just a few things. And now what do they believe about Jesus? They primarily believe that Jesus was a created being. They believe that Jesus essentially was a man who came and fulfilled the Old Testament law perfectly. Therefore, he acts as a as proof that it's possible for us to obey the Old Testament law perfectly. So the idea is they see Jesus as a created being, a man who was able to fulfill the Old Testament law perfectly. And therefore, if Jesus can fulfill the Old Testament law perfectly, then he serves as a model that it's possible for you and I to fulfill the Old Testament law perfectly. So that's why he came to fulfill the law and to show us how it's done. All right. Now, uh, how do you approach a Hebrew Israelite? And then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, move on because I can talk about this stuff all day. How do you approach a Hebrew Israelite? Several things I want to talk to you about. Number one, you need to be skilled in the art of debate and apologetics. If you are going to have a discussion with a Hebrew Israelite, if you are not skilled in the area of debate and apologetics, you need to be very clear. You need to be very uh, careful and you may want to steer clear because you may leave that conversation feeling more discouraged about your faith because they know what they believe and why they believe it, uh, which is very consistent with any cult group. Uh, and so if you're not strong to be able to defend what you believe, you may leave that conversation questioning everything that you've ever believed. Another thing I'll say is this, have a firm grasp on the relationship a believer has with the law and salvation, because they're going to press you on this idea of the law, the Old Testament law. The law was not done away with. You need to obey the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And so you need to obey the law. If you don't understand the relationship between a believer and the Old Testament law, you can easily be deceived. Third thing I'll say is have a firm grasp on the Hebrew language. When you get into communication with a Hebrew Israelite, you might see that they are going to use some Hebrew words. And if you're like, I don't know any Hebrew, they're going to convince you that you don't know what you're talking about. Because if you don't know Hebrew and they claim to know Hebrew, they're going to use that as kind of their ace in the hole card to prove that what you believe is wrong. Another thing I'll say is you need to understand how the Bible was formed. Right. Because many of them, like I said earlier, will throw out different parts of the Bible and they'll say, OK, I believe this and not that. So it's helpful to understand those things as well. And then the other thing that I'll say is um, have a firm grasp on Deuteronomy 28, because that's one of their go to chapters as it relates. As I mentioned, I just mentioned a couple of verses where they use to prove that that passage is a prophecy about them, African people, people of color rather than the uh, children of Israel in the Old Testament. And then there's another one, huge one. You had better know the black presence in the Bible because if you don't know um, black, you know, uh, black presence in the Bible in terms of uh, where people of color existed in the Bible, who are some of the key people of color in the Bible, then you'll appear to them to be already brainwashed by white Christianity. So you need to make sure you understand that context. 
And then finally, you need to know which camp you're interacting with, which is I said, which is what I said earlier, because you don't want to make assumptions that you know what they believe when you might be talking to somebody who's a who believes the whole Bible. You may assume that they're a Torah only uh, Hebrew Israelite. So um, I know that was a lot. I probably went on a lot longer than I had planned, um, which is not uh, which is typical of, of me when I get excited. Uh, but um, hopefully that gave you a good perspective of what they believe and how what they believe is very, very different from uh, evangelical Christianity. So, uh, Mike, do you have anything that you want to add to that? No, much, you, of all the groups, this is the one I, I, I know the least, which is why I did a video on it recently, but I brought on someone else to discuss it because it's like not something... I feel like they're they're the most fractionated of all the groups we're going to talk about. With so it's hardest to discuss. Here's what they are. Like you did, you did a great. You know, you talk about here's different camps, um, and I've also get the feeling that the level of anger is pretty oh. high oh, in boy. dealing with not every black Hebrew Israel, or, or Hebrew Israelite. Sorry if if that's a derogatory term. I I just think of it as a descriptor, but if it's derogatory. Sure. That's fine. Um, but every Hebrew Israelite. But the thing is, actually, there are there's like Irish there's like an Irish group that says they're the true Israelites, right? There's there's other people. There's a lot of different groups claiming they're the true Israelites, which is probably why they use that term "black Hebrew Israelite" just to distinguish <laughs> which which group is it saying they're the true Israelites this time. You know? But right. um, but dealing with the anger and the irritation, yes. that seems to be something you got to really prepare yourself for. I forgot like, about that. I've done customer service. I'm I'm able to look at someone and smile while they're angry. <laughs> I forgot to mention that because guys, that is a look, don't be surprised if you get into communication with them and they yell. A lot of times they're very, very rude, very abrasive, very condescending with their tone. Just go on YouTube and you can you can search for some videos and you'll see some some discussions, some debates, some arguments. And just a lot of yelling. And um, so you have to make sure you have to ask them whether you want to be involved in that and whether it's worth it. OK, so. Um, so, yeah, I would say that that's what sums up the the Hebrew Israelite camp, guys. Um, and I'm going to pass it on to keep this thing going. I'm going to pass it on to Mike. He's going to deal with group number four, I believe it is. Yes. OK, now this group is different than every group we've talked about so far in some pretty significant ways. We're going to talk about Roman Catholicism. And while I would say groups one through four, we could identify as probably a, a cult. We would say those were cult groups. Roman Catholicism, I wouldn't put that label on it. But um, And when we say cult, we don't mean the um, Oxford Studies of Religion definition of cult, which is like any group with religious rituals is considered a cult in that definition. In Christian theology, that's and that is a legitimate discipline, scholarly discipline. In Christian theology, the term more to, you know denotes someone claiming they're Christian, but they're diverting from Christianity on these essential truths. So when I talk about Roman Catholicism, I got to start and I have lots of hours on it, but I, I got to start by saying how much we agree on. Um, let's start with Jesus. Roman Catholic teaching is identical. I mean, it's it's right. It's correct on the person of Christ. It's identical to what I would believe, right? That Jesus is the son of God, second person of the Trinity. He's God incarnate. He died on the cross for your sin, although in some Roman Catholic stuff, that's a little fuzzy on the details there. But he died on the cross for your sin. He rose bodily from the dead, and he's coming to judge all people. We would agree with Roman Catholics with the very first creeds of the early church. Like these are the guys that came out of persecution, wouldn't give up their faith, and then they, you know, have the first earliest creeds of the church. And we would agree on all that. 
some of the disagreement coming. Now, I don't want to discount that agreement. So if you said, is, is Roman Catholic Christian? Well, in a sense, yes, it is. Like it holds to the person of Christ and following Christ and all that. But where it gets complicated and difficult is when we start talking about how salvation works in Roman Catholicism. So according to, the, and, and you can actually get to the nitty gritty of this because there's a lot of official teaching on the topic of salvation. Let me give you some summaries that I'm going to admit many Roman Catholic apologists are not going to like my summaries, but that's because they sound bad. Okay. Not because they're not true. Like I'm going to explain why I believe these things are actually accurate. So they would say Jesus is necessary for salvation, but he's not sufficient. Grace is needed for salvation, but grace is not enough for salvation. Your works help earn your salvation. Now, once I say that, things get real complicated if you're talking to an informed Catholic, because they're going to tell you, oh, I, I've heard it seen this many times, right? Especially the current Catholic apologists who tend to say, are you kidding? We believe a person could just put their faith in Jesus, right? And then, and, and they've done no good works and they die and then they go to heaven. And we believe that. And you're like, wait, what? But, but Mike told me that you guys thought works were needed. Well, here's why it's complicated because they separate salvation into two different stages. Stage one salvation, they call initial justification. Stage two salvation, final justification, or, or you know, you're, you've, you've actually get to heaven later on. And that difference is important for us to understand. So stage one, initial salvation, it's said to be by faith alone and not with any works that you perform. It does require baptism. Baptism is required on Catholic teaching, but they'll say that's not a work and then it's just you're saved by faith alone. And, and baptism usually applies to new babies or, or little little babies, right? Or new converts to Catholicism. But if you've been a Catholic for longer than, you know, a few months or a few years or something, if you were an, an infant and you were baptized, once you get old enough to be an adult, you're on stage two salvation. You are not on... I'm saved by believing and getting baptized, which I don't think baptism is required for salvation, but that is the teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, stage two salvation is where the problems show up. So let me talk about stage two. This is where, and I'm going to quote official Roman Catholic sources so people know I'm not trying to misrepresent it. I think this is very important stuff. And the Roman Catholic Church historically thought this was important. They said that people who don't agree with them on this are accursed from God. So that's kind of them making throwing down the gauntlet on this topic, so we should know about it. Many Catholics don't know what I'm about to share with you guys, so don't approach them as though they do, but let me talk about the official teaching. Your acts of righteousness, according to Roman Catholic teaching, are not just fruit of the work of God in your life, like I do good things because God's Holy Spirit is working in me. Rather, they're also something that merits or earns final salvation. In um, the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent, it says the following thing. If anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, whose living member he is, does not truly merit, listen to this phrase, merit an increase of grace, eternal life, and in case he dies in grace, the attainment of eternal life itself and also an increase of glory. If you don't say all that, let him, if you do say against those things, then let him be anathema. Now I know Trent's worded weird because what they do is they say, if you say this thing we don't like, then you're anathema. 
in that is an affirmation. What they're saying is, you know, Alan, if you're Catholic, you know, you get baptized as an infant most likely, but you're not, you're not an infant anymore. I'm pretty sure you're a little older than that. Now you need to do good works. You're going to, and those good works will merit an increase of grace. Now this from a biblical perspective is an incoherent statement. You don't merit grace. How'd you get that grace? Well, I earned it. <laughs> what? Then, it's, then it's not grace, right? Romans eleven six is my go-to verse on this. It says that if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works or merits. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Like that's just, you know, it's like an ego Montoya shows up in Paul's writing of Romans eleven six and says, grace, you keep using that word. I do not think you know what it means. You know, <laughs> I don't think it means what you think it means. So um, here's another quote from the Council of Trent. By the way, the Council of Trent, like things like, say, the Vatican II, these are these are official councils of the Catholic Church. They're ecumenical. They're binding. They're considered infallible statements. Okay, so the canons, the parts I'm reading are considered infallible statements. Here's the next one from uh, Trent 6, Canon 24. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved, that's the justice we get from God when we get saved, is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Now, if that anathema still applies, there's debate in the Catholic Church. Like some people say, well, that anathema was back then. We don't, we don't anathematize people anymore, but there's no official statement that says they don't anathematize. Like this is the official one. Catholic teaching is very complicated because there's lots of unofficial things floating around Catholicism. I try to stick to the councils because they're the official, you know, considered infallible claims. Um, but they're saying our justification, our salvation is preserved and increased by our good works. But Galatians, the book of Galatians seems to be written against this very idea. Paul's like, hey, you started with grace. Now you're going to be perfected by your flesh. Like, no, you stand in grace. You start in grace, you stand in grace. It's your whole Christian life is sustained purely by grace, which means you're not earning it. But look at how the gospel is defined. This is in the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 2068. And I'll quote, the gospel to every creature, they're going to preach the gospel to every creature, so that all men may attain salvation. And look at how they say you get it, through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. So you actually get salvation by, I have faith, I have baptism, and we're like, oh, yes, have faith. Okay, get baptized. You should get baptized, even if I don't think that's the cause of your salvation. You should all get baptized. And you should observe the commandments, but these things aren't giving you salvation, but they are on Roman Catholicism giving you that salvation that anybody with a thinking mind who didn't get baptized five seconds ago is, is accountable to do. That's on Catholicism. It's how you stay saved. It's how you maintain, or even how you get back your salvation. Uh, one of the things they do is like, say, the Eucharist, which they, you know, you go to a church and you partake of communion. They believe it's the body and blood of Christ, literally, when the, the priest has a special power, he has the power of invocation. When he speaks special words over the cup and over the bread, they turn into the body and blood of Christ. This is considered something of a re-sacrifice or a representation of a new, like the sacrifice of Christ anew is, is right there for you. You partake of it. Because this week you might have done something that made you lose your salvation. And now you're getting you're getting it again. You're getting salvation again. So many Catholics would be thinking they're getting re-saved uh, as they uh, re-forgiven as they partake of communion. But even if you have good works, baptism, you try to obey the commands, but you're not perfect and you know you're not. I know I'm not. 
you can actually still be paying for your sins on Roman Catholic teaching even after you die, even if you're covered by Jesus's blood. This is a sad and terrorizing thought, but that's what purgatory is. Now, many Catholics, modern Catholics, they think purgatory is just like, oh, you're, it's just character change. It happens in an instant and they try to like kind of water down purgatory. But when you go to the official teachings of the Catholic church, purgatory has a different function. Purgatory is there for you to pay for the punishment of your sins. That freaks me out as a Christian. I'm like, what, what? Jesus paid once and for all. Let me read to you guys. This is from the council of Florence. This is an ecumenical council. That means it, it matters. <laughs> you can't run away from it on Roman Catholic teaching. So um, council of Florence, where it says it, it has, um, it has likewise defined. Now this, when, when a council defines something, it means that it's binding on everyone. You all have to believe this. It has likewise defined that if those truly penitent have departed in the love of God before they've made satisfaction by worthy fruits of penance for sins of commission and omission. Okay. So let me, for those who might get lost in the old school terminology there for people who are Catholics, they're generally good Catholics, but they died and they haven't like done enough good works for all to cover all their sins and they haven't done enough penance and everything. So they still have some sin on them. The souls of these, I read on the souls of these are cleansed after death by purgatorial punishments. And so that they may be released from punishments of this kind, the suffrages of the living faithful are an advantage to, of advantage to them. Namely the sacrificed, uh, sacrifices of mass, prayer and almsgiving and other works of piety, which are customarily performed by the faithful over or for other faithful, according to the institutions of the church. Let me, I, I want to read that in full. So people know I'm not, I'm not making stuff up. I always get accused of your misrepresenting Catholicism. You guys are welcome to look up these councils on your own. Look them up. Don't just listen to what random people are saying. Like, let's go to the real sources here. But what it's stating is you're going to suffer punishment for your sins in purgatory, but to try to speed that along, people that are alive now, they can do a mass in your name and it's, and they can do good works and they can give and offer like a donation in your name and it will help cover your sins, pay for your sins so that you can get to heaven quicker because purgatory most Catholics traditionally have thought purgatory is a pretty horrific, unpleasant place to be. And this to me is all so sad because it takes away from the finished work of Jesus Christ because it adds your work, your filthy rags to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's so sad. There's many other things we could talk about. I'm not going to get into Marian doctrines, doctrines about Mary. We both love Mary. Well, Catholic and you know evangelicals were like, hey, Mary is great. But Roman Catholic teaching would also add that she was born without sin without original sin, that she bodily ascended into heaven, whether she died or not is a debate in, amongst Catholics, whether she even died physically. She has bodily ascended into heaven and she was always a virgin, even though the Bible says that Jesus had actual real brothers and sisters. Um, and But these are doctrines they've had. They've added so many things. The whole idea of saints and the, our interaction with saints, the priesthood that doesn't exist in the Bible, but is extremely important in Catholicism. Concepts like the treasury of merit or the, the, the college of bishops that they have and the Pope. All this stuff is completely foreign to scripture. So you've got to ask the question, right? Where do they get all this stuff? Like, where's all this stuff coming from? If it's not from the Bible, where is purgatory and the Pope and the bishops and the treasury of merit and the priesthood and the doctrines about Mary? Like, where is all this stuff coming from? And the answer is their authority is, is scripture-ish, okay? They reverence scripture highly, and I applaud them for that. The Pope will say, hey, guys, you need to read your Bibles. The Pope recently has said this. Now, 
go back 400 years and they were telling people not to read the Bible, <laughs> but, but at least now they're saying read the Bible and I appreciate that. Um, but they've got to have these unbiblical teachings coming from somewhere. So the sources they have that are as equally authoritative as the Bible, equally, and I would argue even higher, are sacred tradition and the Pope and the bishops in agreement with him. Catch it in agreement with him, meaning any any bishop ultimately who says something in a disagreement with the Pope doesn't count. Only the Pope and the ones that agree with him count, which means the Pope counts. <laughs> That's what it all ultimately comes down to. Um, now, sacred tradition, they'll, they'll refer to as the church fathers. Catholic apologists and, and Catholics tend to have like very high estimations of the church fathers and of church history. They're going to read lots of sources. But in my experience, when I check those sources thoroughly, I find they have a highly edited version of the church fathers. And even in official things like Trent or Vatican II, Vatican I, they will say stuff about the church fathers in history that's simply not true. And it feels more like they're trying to use the authority of these dead people, which doesn't really exist. They shouldn't have real authority there as a way of justifying doctrines that came later. And they're like, well, we, we find it in the church fathers. But yeah, it's a very edited version and scattered quotes of the church fathers. Um, if you want to go down that road, you guys should read them, read the church fathers in total. And you'll see how they're being used there. But ultimately, here's here's where, what it comes down to. Um, you could go to the Bible, you could go to the church fathers, but that won't give you Catholic teaching. Roman Catholic teaching is going to come from the Pope and the ecumenical councils. That's what it's going to come from. And when they say ecumenical, they don't mean the whole church. They mean the whole Roman Catholic church that the Pope agrees with. That's It's a different thing. The Pope and the Roman Catholic magisterium or the teaching authority of the church, they're the only ones that are allowed to interpret the Bible like officially interpret the Bible. So you can't use the Bible to tell them they're wrong. If they were wrong, you wouldn't be allowed to use the Bible to overrule them. So the Bible loses that authority in your life personally. When Paul says to the Galatians, if anyone preaches a gospel different than what I preached to you, let him be accursed. That requires the Galatians to go to what Paul said, which we have in Romans and Galatians and stuff, and use it to refute anybody, including Paul. He says, even if I come, even my apostolic authority doesn't trump the message you already received. So we're as everyday Christians supposed to use the Bible to refute anybody, anybody, any authority, even Paul, if he came back later and got weird. But in Roman Catholicism, you can't do that. So the Pope is the real authority. You could say, well, church um, tradition and the church fathers, they're an authority. Yeah, but they're edited and chosen. You know, they, they'll, they'll quote a church father here, but they disagree with him over there. They take the majority of the church fathers on this issue of baptism. They take a minority on the issue of, say, Mary, where we don't see or say um, marriage as a sacrament. We didn't talk about the seven sacraments, but one of them is that marriage is a sacrament. In the, I think it's Vatican I, they say that this was always believed, universally known by the church fathers that the marriage was a sacrament. And that's completely untrue. Like, historically, no, the church fathers didn't think that. Um, you see a couple scattered quotes hundreds of years later, and then finally, you see it becoming a popular thing around like 900, 1000 AD. So in other words, it comes down to the Pope. It comes down to the Pope. Now, the question we have about the Pope is, is it biblical and is it historical? And because I lack time, I will refer to my other teaching content on the topic of Catholicism. But I will say this. If you start with just the Bible and try to form that, like, like you mentioned with... Um, uh, I think it was with the LDS, like start with just the New Testament, try to get your doctrines of, of the papacy. It's not there. You know, Peter, Jesus says like Peter on this rock. Yeah, but that still doesn't give you a whole papacy. Like you would just be like, Peter's important. Like it wouldn't give you a papacy, even if you took their interpretation. So you go to church history. Now here's where a book I'm going to recommend if you guys want to like really go deep. Okay. 
this is a scholar's work, right? From Paul um, to, to Valentinus, uh, Valentinus. And this is Christians at Rome in the first two centuries. And it's not a book about Catholicism. It's a scholar, Peter Lamp, who gets into like every nitty gritty detail we know about the early church in Rome, first two centuries. Finally, at the end of his book, he talks about the, what he calls the monarch, monarchical episcopy, which is the idea of a single bishop ruling over the entire city of Rome, the church of Rome, rather, not the city governmentally, but the church. He says that that didn't happen until late in the second century, like 185, we finally have one man who's like got authority across all the different local fellowships in Rome. That was 150 years after Jesus. That's how long it was. And then, and only then, did they slowly start to flex authority over other churches. The idea that Rome has authority over the global church is not from the first century. It's it's not at all. There was no single guy in And I know people are gonna be like, but Irenaeus and stuff. Dude, I beg you to pick up this book, read like a real scholar on the topic. You can tell he's not even trying to enter into the Protestant Catholic debates at all. He's just like a nerd about history and he's getting into the details. So it's a, it's a nice neutral source for people to check out. But yeah, I, I think um, for some ideas on how to approach Roman Catholicism, I would say um, approach Catholics individually. They're so individual. Um, unlike say uh, the Hebrew Israelites, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the LDS, they're actually going to have pretty consistent theology with their groups. Roman Catholics are not like this at all. Um, the majority of U.S. Catholics, for instance, they actually support abortion. The majority of U.S. Catholics, whereas the Catholic Church is staunchly and rightly against abortion. But it, this shows you that Catholics and Catholicism are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, they're, they're more into the the rituals are consistent with Catholics. The beliefs themselves are very inconsistent. So I, I would just want to be like, hey, maybe this person does believe the biblical gospel. I don't even know. I'm just going to ask some questions and discuss it with them. You could start with the common ground you have with Jesus in the Bible. And then you could talk about two things that I would recommend anyway. I would say talk about the gospel of grace. Go to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, that by grace we're saved through faith apart from works that that's important, lest anyone should boast. Go to that verse, go to Romans eleven six. that if it's grace, it's not works, you can't mix them. Go to Galatians, just read and study the book of Galatians. Talk about the gospel of grace and the glory and goodness there is in that. And you can also talk about the papacy because the core of Catholicism, um, of, of, of having say all these extra doctrines that aren't from scripture is trusting that the Pope is God's man. Now, this is why for some Roman Catholics, debating scripture is secondary because the whole time in the debate, they're thinking in the back of their head, but you're not the Pope. You can't interpret the Bible. You're not, you're not official. Like, who are you? You're some Protestant. You're, you're not even, you don't even have a legitimate church. Why should I listen to what you say about the Bible? So you might want to talk about the position of the papacy. And you say, I would say to a, a Roman Catholic, hey, show me the Pope just using the Bible. And I will submit because I would. I'm not, I'm not rebellious in, by nature, I don't think. You know, like I don't just want to rebel against authority. I'll submit if you could show me that in the Bible. And if you want to go into the historical stuff, you need to know the church fathers as well as they do because they'll be quoting all kinds of stuff out of context. So, um, yeah, I, my heart, I love, I love Catholics. I think that Catholicism is a wonder, wonderful truths about Christ, wonderful truths about Scripture with tons of human additions. It reminds me of the Pharisaism Jesus dealt with in his time where they had the true beliefs about God, the true beliefs about Moses and all this other stuff, but they added tons of human works and righteousness and an authority they never really had. Um, I think Pharisee, 
Pharisees and Roman Catholic leaders have a lot in common nowadays. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, for that thorough, um, uh, explanation guys. And, uh, uh, you know, once again, both of us have, have done some work on this issue of, um, you know, uh, Catholicism and, and whatnot. But a couple of things also uh, that I would love to throw out and uh, Mike, feel free to, for, to comment on this. But if you're going to have a conversation with um, someone of the Catholic belief, uh, Catholic faith, make sure you have an answer ready for this whole idea of sola scriptura. Right. Because a lot of cap, well, Catholics in general, they, they reject the idea of sola scriptura, right? And by the way, sola scriptura is just basically means only scripture, right? The Bible is the only authority. So as an evangelical Christian, we get our, and this is where the divide happens, right? We get what we believe is the truth from the Bible only, sola only scriptura, scripture, right? Um, whereas a Catholic doesn't subscribe to that. Matter of fact, they will they will fight you on that. They will say, show me in the Bible where the Bible says it's the only authority. Show me where uh, any scripture, show me anywhere in the Bible where it says the only authority that we should listen to is the Bible. And that's one of their key main things that they will use to try to discredit the idea that the Bible is the only authority because they'll say the Bible never claims that is the only authority. And when mm -hmm. if you can discredit that if you can if you can um, if you can cut down uh, or reject the idea of sola scriptura, then you open yourself up to the the uh, the traditions, the church fathers, the the popes, and and putting what they say on the same level as what the Bible says, because sola scriptura is no it's not a thing. It, 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 you know. What, what, what our church leaders and church fathers have passed down to us are equivalent and on the same level as the Bible because we don't believe the Bible teaches that it's the only uh, inspired, inspired revelation. And then other thing I would say too is um, Mike mentioned several times about the Bible. Make sure you understand that the Protestant Bible and the Catholic Bible are not the same. There's some extra books in there called the Apocrypha and that is where they're getting a lot of their doctrine from. Because um, you may say, well, you know, how, man, where are they getting this stuff from? Like, I don't read it in my Bible, like praying to the saints, praying for the saints and uh, purgatory, like uh, giving alms to try to get somebody from purgatory to heaven. Where is this coming from? Well, it's because the, their Bible has seven extra books in it called the Apocrypha. And that's where they're getting a lot of their doctrine from. Mm hmm. That's awesome. I, I actually have a video on Sola Scriptura. I just got to plug it because you guys, I've made that video in mind with discussing this with Catholics in mind so that, you know, that would hopefully prepare you. There's specifically pa passages I go to and defining it and all that's very important, but uh, just, yeah, it's there if you guys want to look for it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys. So uh, we know this is a long stream, but hopefully you guys are getting some value. So for those of you just coming on, uh, I know like, we're, we're, we're like we're having a good we're time. Like way here. longer than we wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah actually, it's a lot longer than we wanted to be. We thought we we're going to be done in like 90 minutes. We got two more groups. So hang on with us, guys. We're moving forward. So, so far to recap, we've covered the Mormon church or the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day mm -hmm. Saints. We have covered uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. We've covered the Hebrew Israelites. And then Mike just covered uh, Catholicism. And then now we're going to do group number five. And then once again, we're going to finish off with group number six, which is the one we're most concerned about. And, uh, and so now I'm going to go back and look at group number five. 
And this is a group, guys, that I have done quite a, bu- a, a, quite a bit of work on on my channel, uh, Seventh-day Adventists. I've done so many videos on uh, this group. And so uh, we want to take a look at what they believe. And I think this will be one of the shorter ones out of the, the groups that we're going to talk about today. Um, Seventh-day Adventists. And so once again, I've got, oh, let's see, one, two, three, four videos on my channel specific, specifically about uh, this group and their doctrine. So I encourage you to check those out. And I, I trust that Mike does as well. So um, let's just go through it. What do... SDAs, we'll call them for short, believe about God. Well, um, uh, SDAs accept and embrace the orthodox view of God. So no issues there, right? They believe that, you know, God is one. They believe in the Trinity. Um, you know, God the Father exists in three persons. Like So there's there's no issue there. No issue there at all, okay? So, and by the way, if you want a clearer idea of what an Adventist believes, just go to Adventist.org. And on that website, you'll see that they have 28 fundamental beliefs. And if you're really interested in what they believe, just read through that. But I will say this. I will say this. And I may get in trouble for saying this. Not every single thing that... uh need to be careful when I say this. Um, there are a lot of hidden doctrines or, or beliefs that many individual Adventists. Notice how I phrased that. I didn't say Adventism. I said many individual Adventists that you will meet. There's many hidden beliefs that you may or may not find on their website. And I'm going to try to highlight a couple of them here. All right. Uh, Now, what do SDAs believe about divine authority? Now, once again, uh, I want to be very, very careful and fair to this group. Uh, and, and this goes along the lines of there being variances within every one of these groups. Okay. So let me just, the best way I thought about and prayed about how to, to, to talk about this group is, uh, first and foremost, there's a couple of groups that you're going to run into a couple of different types of Adventists. There's the moderate group and the moderate group is going to be like, yeah, we believe the exact same thing that you do. The Bible only, that's it. Nothing more. The Bible only, that's it. Right now. You're just be prepared. You're also going to run across some more extreme, maybe radical is probably the word I should have used. Radical uh, uh, Seventh Day Adventists, and they will also say because they they have to. Their Adventist website says this. They will also say the Bible only, but the Bible only as it is interpreted and understood by Ellen G. White. See, so there you go. So now we say, yeah. That's of course we are, we believe in solo scripture. I mean, yes, we believe in only the Bible, okay. But yes, we believe in the Bible as it is interpreted or understood by one of our founders, Ellen G. White. So as 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 Ellen G. White interprets certain passages or texts or doctrines or theology in the Bible, which is not in any other book, it's still in the Bible. That's how we interpret these things, right? And that's the reason why. Having conversations with them can be very difficult because you're not going to run into them using verses from other books or other, you know, divine authority or anything like that. Um, they're using the Bible for everything. The question is, are they interpreting it in the same way as an evangelical Christian? Well, some may in some instances, right? In most instances, in most instances, yes. But then you have the radical group that um, is going to be a little bit different. So I just want to make sure you're clear on that. 
Now, speaking of Ellen G. White, some, now once again, all right, if you're an Adventist out there, don't crucify me here, but some, some of them will place her writings on par with the writings of the Apostle Paul. And I can already see some Adventists and they're saying, you're misrepresenting us, right? Well, it's true because if you look at some of the key figures in their history, there are people in their church, in their denomination that have gone on record to say, I think one of them is Robert Olson, who's gone on record to say that there's no reason why I wouldn't see the writings of Ellen G. White as being on the same spiritual level of authority as uh, the writings of Paul. As a matter of fact, on their website, Adventist.org, they have since changed this. They have since changed it. But if you, if, you, if you do a little bit of research and you dig on their website, they used to say that Ellen G. White's writings are a continual source of divine truth and authority. Something along those lines. Some, I can't quote it exactly. But a continuing source of divine truth and and authority. Now they have since changed that language, I think because they understand that you're getting into trouble when you start to say that Ellen G. White writings are a continual source of divine truth, right? It's, they're going to run into too many issues if they're trying to assimilate to being a Christian or in a Christian group and not be considered a cult. They're going to run into too many any issues when you have that on your website. So I think they've changed, I know they've changed that, okay? Now, another issue that's a little bit different is they believe in the ongoing gift of prophecy. Now, obviously, you know, we do as well as Christians, but the idea is it's a little bit different. Um, for, this is where things kind of get a little bit kind of dicey because if they believe that, uh, you know, okay, yes, we believe in the Bible, but we also believe in this strong gift of prophecy and, and the fact that God could reveal something more. Now, on their website, they'll say that, prophecy must always line up with scripture, which I love and respect. I believe that as well. But it's difficult, guys. I'm just being honest. It's difficult to really wonder if, well, I'll just say it this way. Um, there are many, there are several things that Ellen G. White has said and have, have written, uh, have prophesied that are not consistent with biblical truth. So if from a Christian perspective, we would call that person a false prophet. If what they're saying and writing and predicting isn't consistent with the scriptures, we would label that person a false prophet and therefore we should not follow what that person is saying, right? And um, unfortunately, in the Adventist church, you, 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 know, you, you don't have this extreme, um, what's the word I'm looking for? denunciation or rejection of some of the things that Ellen G. White is kind of just, eh, well, you know, she didn't mean that, right? Uh, she didn't mean it that way. Or, she, or, or if you really knew the spirit behind what she was saying, you'd understand that she's interpreting it a different way. For instance, some of the things that she'll say is that, you know, the, the obeying the Sabbath is the golden clasp for salvation. It's required for salvation, things like that. So when I've had conversations with Adventists about this, which to me is very clear when somebody says obedience to the Sabbath is the golden clasp of salvation, that seems to be very clear that if you don't do this, you're not a Christian, you're not saved, you're not going to heaven. But when I've had conversation with some uh, in the Adventist church, they say, well, she didn't mean that. You know, you took it out of context. 
And then when I ask them to, you know, can you explain to me how I took it out of context? Like, what is the proper context? How should I understand what Ellen G. White says when she says these things? I have not been able to get a solid answer for that. So once again, if we stay away from Ellen G. White and we just look at what's on their website, I love it, right? I love it because I didn't see a whole lot on there that I would strongly disagree. But if you start embracing the everything that Ellen G. White said as truth and doctrine and gospel, that's when I think we can get into some issues, all right? Now, I probably went on a whole lot longer than that. Now, what do they believe about Jesus? Well, their, their website clearly states that uh, they believe that Jesus is the son of God, good. The second member of the Godhead, good. Born of a virgin, good. And prophesied to be the coming Messiah from the Old Testament, good. So no issues there, guys, no issues. Now, I know there's some people that will bring up that, that you know, they believe that Jesus is um, something else, uh, uh, but that, that whatever that is, I can't think of right now, that's been debunked, okay? They, they've explained what they mean by that, and that makes sense. But once again, what they believe about God is spot on. What they believe about Jesus is spot on, right? So that's why you have to be careful when you talk to people of of uh, and just assume that, okay, well, this person's not a Christian. They're a cult, blah, 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 because much of what they have on their, on their website and what they believe is the same thing that you and I believe. It's the same things, right? Now, yes, before I get into trouble, yes, there are some differences because I can see, I already tell you guys, you can send me some emails. Yes, there are some very distinct differences, all right? I have four videos on my channel that you can go and I can line up all the differences, all right? So just be clear on that. All right, now what do they leave about salvation? So once again, you have the two moderate group and extremist group or radical group. Now, the moderate group will say the Sabbath is not required for salvation. The Sabbath is just a gift that God gives us to commune with him. Think of it like a date night with your wife. You're not not, you're not, not married to your, your, your spouse if you don't do a date night. But the gift of a date night just gives you that time each week to connect and to commune with your spouse. But it's not like you're not married if you don't take that date night. That's how many Adventists will interpret or explain the gift of the Sabbath. It's just one day of the week, Saturday, the Sabbath, which Saturday is the Sabbath, not Sunday, right? Uh, and they'll say, well, you know, this is just a gift. It's a it's a 24-hour period where God says, rest, relax, connect. And I love that. I respect that, right? You're not wrong to obey the Sabbath. Let's be honest, guys. We all need rest and we should rest. The issue is, does it have to be done from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday? And that's where you get into now this is a law and we're not under grace, but then they'll say that this is part of the Ten Commandments and therefore when did the Ten Commandments, when were the Ten Commandments ever abolished? And so we get into that whole thing, right? Uh, so so um, now there's an extremist group. A radical group would say you must keep the Sabbath because it's required for salvation. And these are the people that primarily are... Uh, taking a lot of the, the language from Ellen G. White's writings. And so they will basically make you feel if you do not keep the Sabbath, then you are not saved because you are living your life in complete and total disobedience to the word of God, to the Ten Commandments. So how can you be saved if you're living your life in disobedience? Okay. Now, once again, two different groups here. Now, what do they believe about salvation? Well, essentially it teaches that Jesus, uh, okay, sorry. Uh, salvation, let me back up a little bit. 
probably the 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 biggest issue that I have with the Adventist doctrine is a is a doctrine called the investigative judgment. I don't have time to go into it all right here. I do go into it in my video, but essentially the idea is this, and I, and I want to I don't want to get into all of it, but um, they believe that Jesus Christ is in their in in the heavenly sanctuary right now, fulfilling his and I quote in their words the second and last phase of his atoning ministry. So the idea is that he started his atonement on earth when he died on the cross for our sins, but that not an, that 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 was just the start. That was the first phase of his atonement. The second and last phase of his atoning ministry is him in heaven right now. And he is uh, doing an investigative judgment on your life and on mine. And he's assessing whether you and I are, um, uh, you and I are fit for, for heaven or uh, we should be forgiven for our sins. I, I, th there's some confusion, to be honest with you, because I've asked several Adventists. And I'll be honest with you. A lot of Adventists you talk to, they won't even understand this dog. They, they, they'll be like, investigative what? Like, And then you have some that will give an answer. Then you have some that um, will clearly be able to explain it to you. So um, th this one is one that, depending upon who you talk to, can be somewhat unclear. But the issue is Jesus' atonement is done. Tetelestai. It is finished on the cross. There is no more work to do. There is no second and last phase of the atoning ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He said it is finished when he breathed his last. That's it. There's nothing more that Jesus Christ has to do to accomplish our salvation. It's done. So to apply that there's more to do would be inconsistent once again with what the Bible says. Now, I wish I could give a fuller answer to that because the whole investigative judgment comes from uh, a failed prophecy from some of their um, founders around 1844, somewhere around there. And so then this doctrine of the investigative judgment kind of emerged from there. Don't have time to go into that right now. Um, what do they believe about hell? Now, this is one that's, that's very different than the, uh, than the uh, evangelical uh, position. And, uh, and so their view on hell is that, um, uh, that they believe in what's called annihilation. So they don't believe that uh, people will eternally be tormented in hell. They believe that, uh, you know, they interpret destruction, words like destruction, as um, burning up or ceasing to exist, right? Uh, you've, um, you've sinned and you've committed a punishment and you're going to pay for that punishment for a particular time. But once you've paid for your punishment, you will burn up. You will cease to exist and therefore you'll be annihilated and uh, the Lord is, you know, you're not going to uh, be punished and tormented forever. Now, while that sounds real good and while that makes us feel much better about the picture of God that we have in our mind that, oh, thankfully, that's good. God, God doesn't, uh, God's not going to just sit up in heaven and torture his, his uh, creation forever, you know, and look down from heaven and laugh and say, oh, you're burning up. Like, first of all, I don't think that's even consistent with scripture. But second of all, it makes us feel better to think that God won't punish and torment people. And as much as I would love to think 
and embrace that doctrine because it feels better to know that those who you love that aren't going to go to heaven aren't going to be tormented forever and ever. I just can't, there's just not enough exegetical proof from the scriptures to suggest that, you know, phrases like forever and ever really don't mean forever and ever. Or whenever you look at the verse that says some will rise to everlasting life and others to everlasting punishment, if it's the same Greek word in that verse for everlasting life and everlasting punishment, how can you interpret one as meaning we're going to live forever and the other as meaning you're going to, um, you're not going to live forever. It's the same Greek word in the same verse. So there's just too much exegetical proof that leads us to believe that uh, their doctrine of the afterlife is not consistent with the uh, evangelical doctrine of hell. So um, that's all I'll say about Adventists. I have some good friends who are Adventists. I have family members who are. I love them dearly. They know where I stand on this issue. Um, uh, but um, we do disagree in some, some key aspects, but I will say this. We agree on a whole lot more than we disagree on. And that's the reason why I can have fellowship with someone of the Adventist denomination because what we agree on is a whole lot greater than what we disagree on. And that's the position that I take. Um, Mike, what are your what are your thoughts, man? <laughs> I know this one is I know this is a tough one. I'm a bit on the fence on this on this issue, but it's because um, though years ago I did look into SDA beliefs, it wasn't super thoroughly, and that was many years ago, and I just honestly don't remember a lot of the stuff. So I have been this is one of the top requested subjects for me to cover. And I haven't covered it for my own reasons. I haven't like sometimes what's most popular isn't what I actually or most asked for isn't what I actually do. I do things nobody asks for that. I'm like, but you need it anyway. That's my view. So right. um, I do that. But so I haven't gotten into this yet. I, so I can't actually speak to a lot of the things that you're talking about. I'm just kind of like taking it in. OK, um, I would I would love, though, one of these days to do a video where I just do a study of not SDA, but LNG White. And just her teaching and her very, I think it would be a very interesting, worthwhile video because everyone does something on SDA, but I would just be, think it would be nice to do something just on S, on, on LNG White, um, you know, read, read all of her stuff and look at it. But at any rate, um, yeah, I, I can't really weigh in. I don't even have content online about the issue. Yeah. Um, but are, are, would you say that for some of the people who are commenting in, in videos like that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast, <laughs> that that relates to the extremist SDA group? Yes, yeah, so exactly. And thank you for bringing that up. So I talk, I talk about that in one of in one of my videos because once again, that context, that 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 statement that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. See, this is what I'm talking about, guys. This is this is what I mean when I say when you talk to an Adventist, um, you know, be be careful because on the surface it's going to appear as though the what they believe is exactly what you believe with the exception of, hey, we worship on Saturday, you worship on Sunday. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's okay. I go to Saturday church sometimes too, no big deal, right? But when you dig into Ellen G. Whiting's writings, you will find that Ellen G. White says this in her writings, that those who go to church on Sunday are the, uh, receiving the mark of the beast. Right. And so this is where I have conversation with my Adventist Ventus friends. And I'm like, OK, wow, you're basically saying that if I go to church on Sunday, I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian. 
right? And so how can you say that, yes, you know, you're my brother in Christ, but one of the main founders in your denomination, Ellen G. White, has plastered everywhere on her writings that Sunday church worship is a mark of the beast, right? So as an Adventist, you have a, if you're watching this, and I pray for you, if you're watching this, you have a decision. Are you going to have the boldness to say, okay, I believe in the Bible, even if it dis, even if it uh, diverts from Ellen G. White? Will you be bold enough to say that? That that might get you in trouble. That might ruffle some feathers in your denomination for you to say, look, I do believe in the Bible. And I do believe in, in Lord Jesus, but I don't see some of the things that Ellen G. White is saying in her writings as consistent. So you, you have that choice. Or you have the choice of saying, you know what, I'm too afraid to step out and assert this. And so therefore, I'm just going to cower back and say, well, you know what, what Ellen G. White says is true. And that's how I interpret the Bible. But just know that if you do that, what you're saying, if you if you agree with everything that Ellen G. White has written, what you're saying is that you have to obey the Sabbath to be saved, and you're also saying that those who do not are part of the apostate church, and that the SDA church is the only true church, which is what Ellen G. White believes, and that those who go to church on Sunday are receiving the mark of the beast. And if that's what you really believe as an Adventist, then what you're saying is that I'm going to hell. And when I've challenged my SDA friends on that, they, they're stuck. They're like, I don't want to say that. I don't want to believe that you are. But then they also don't want to go against Ellen G. White. And yeah, so I like appreciate people who will just stand on their beliefs, even if we disagree. And I know as one, someone who I want to have these conversations out with people where I'm like, hey, what is it you believe? I hate the wishy-washy responses where they're not willing to stand and be like, this is, yes. okay, look, I'm yep. LDS. I think that we can all become gods and it's kind of the most important thing to me and mm -hmm. it should be the most important thing to everybody. Like, like I'm really not interested in the conversation where someone's like, well, you know, we don't emphasize that doctrine anymore. I know, I know. Um, she Same may have taught thing. that, but but you know, there's a variety of different views yep. and you just know, back pedaling away from everything we believe. Like I'm just, who respects that kind of religious commitment? I don't know. Exactly, yeah. So guys, we could do, I could go on and on about that. We'll link all the videos in the description so you guys can binge away for hours on Mike and I's content. Uh, so, uh, we've, we've come to the last group and I'm going to let my guest, Mike Winger, take it away. And guys, this is the group that we're most concerned about. So group number six, uh, Mike, uh, take it away, man. Yeah. Well, when me and Alan were brainstorming, like what groups to discuss, which groups we might want to talk about the one that I thought I'm the most worried about, but it's hardest to define is what I will just call, I'm going to give it a name. Okay. It doesn't have a name. I'm going to give it a name, but you'll know what I mean. Pop Christianity. Okay. So pop Christianity is when I describe it, what I mean is it claims to be Christian, but it only borrows pieces from Christianity, usually to, to like have a Christian veneer so that it might have a sense of, of um, authority in the beliefs and in the things that are being said. But it's more shaped by culture and personal preference than any kind of actual commitment to the true Jesus. So pop Christianity or popular Christianity, I think, is a much more pervasive problem than any of the groups we've mentioned so far. I really do. 
I think that this is this is the person you talk to and you're like, man, I want you to I want you to know Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. And they're like, oh yeah, I do. And you're thinking, why do they think that? <laughs> they're like, they, you know, they they did so it's hard to define, but they deny central things about Christ. They make up on the spot what they mean by religious claims. I'll give you some examples. If if you were to ask, here's a great question back from the 90s, right? What would Jesus do? Which I think is a is a good question to ask. I think it's it's a thoughtful thing to be like, hey, what would Jesus do? But if you were to ask this of a pop Christian, they would not consult scripture in the word of God to think, here's Jesus, here's what he was like, here's what he did. Now let me try to think how Jesus might respond in this situation. Instead, they'll con they'll consult this like cartoony image of Jesus where he's like half Indian yogi, half new age guru, half, um, you know, rich uncle. <laughs> he's like all of these things. And I guess that's three halves. But anyway, the point is, they're not going to consult scripture. They're going to consult culture, feelings, and maybe a few verses out of context. The pop Christian knows that Jesus says, don't judge, but he has no idea what Jesus meant by that. He's never read Matthew 7 beyond just the first verse. Um, he knows that Jesus is really always on your side, always on your side, which is a nonsense thing to say, because anyone who is literally always on your side must have no moral commitments whatsoever <laughs> because no matter what you do, they support you. That's a little scary, actually. Jesus is always ready to tell those religious Christians to be quiet, but everybody else, Jesus loves and embraces and accepts. This is not a Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus of pop Christianity. And it, and it, it breaks my heart because I don't actually know. When it comes to advice, I don't have a lot of good advice here because I'm not really sure how to reach somebody who's um, so confident that they know who Jesus is, but they've spent so little time trying to find out who Jesus is. And so you have to kind of like shake them up and make them realize like, you don't really actually know the Jesus you're talking about. Jesus is a shape changer. He's kind of a Buddhist. He's kind of new age. He's kind of everything. It's the Oprah Jesus, right? Jesus who agrees with Oprah's theology and thinks, you know, law of attraction, you know, that's kind of like a Jesus thing too. And didn't all the teachers kind of teach the same thing? And Jesus and Jesus and um, and Buddha would get along great and they would just agree on all things. Um, that kind of attitude, it sounds good and it feels like it builds bridges, right? Because we're sort of like, man, I'm a Christian, but I don't judge. I'm a Christian, but, I, but I'm not exclusive. I'm not saying Jesus is the only way or something like that because I'm a Christian, but I'm not like those mean religious Christians who actually hold to what Jesus said, right? I'm a Christian who says Jesus, but what I mean is Oprah, <laughs> what I mean is somebody else. I'm not trying to rip on Oprah, but she has publicly proclaimed her, her strange religious views. And I think that they agree with a lot of what I would consider pop Christianity. Um, pop Christianity, the person who's a pop Christian in my view, and I, Alan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how I'm unpacking this. Maybe you'll you'll look at it differently and that's totally cool. But I would say that they, they look at Jesus with a lot of sentimentality. Jesus is a sentimental figure. Um, they might actually get very passionate about Jesus even, but they don't actually look at him deeply. So he's his teachings are unknown. They've probably never read through the Sermon on the Mount like carefully. They've just sort of casually maybe looked at a few things here and there. They they don't know the things that Jesus actually taught. Like when, when what Jesus taught about judgment, they probably aren't aware of that or that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Um, they understand that the truth will set you free. There's a Jesus phrase. I like that one. The truth will set you free in it. But in their mouth, it's, it's a phrase that could be applied to anything, whereas Jesus was talking about something very specific that was very important. They will say they're Christians, but they're going to go consult their ast astrological calendar. They're going to go get a psychic reading. 
they're going to have sex before marriage and they don't feel like there's anything weird about that because you got to test drive the car before you buy it. They're going to believe in the law of attraction. They think Jesus is their life coach. Church is meant to be a consumer experience that does something for them. And they pretty much judge church based upon how well this stage environment makes me feel good so that I might go about my life. And they don't really, don't really know that church is about something more and better than all that. Not that it never does that, but that's just not the point. If you ask them sort of deep theological questions, was Jesus sinless? This is what the pop Christian will do. You'll notice them. And this is a key moment. Was he, was Jesus without sin? They go, and they think to themselves, not what does scripture say, but they think, huh, the version of Jesus that I have made up in my head was he was that. No, I, th I think I think he wasn't perfect. You know, no one's perfect. Maybe they'll say that because their theology is kind of getting made up on the spot because they've never really weighed these things out. Usually, most of the time, it's really thin. Is Jesus God? And they might look up and go, hmm, let me think. No, I don't think. I don't know if he's God. Or maybe, yeah, okay, sure, he's God. You know, but it's not like this deep commitment where the early church was like the apostles would die for these claims. They would literally die rather than recant these claims. But to a pop Christian, it's it's almost as though religion is a smorgasbord or a, a buffet where you go and you kind of take different pieces you like. And maybe you take, maybe your plate has a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of new age, a little bit of like sort of general cultural stuff, baggage. And, and then you got some Christian, Christian stuff on there too. So you figure you're Christian. Um, it's sad because it's, you ever see lemmings, you know, the idea of a lemming where they, where they follow the crowd off a cliff, like the lemmings are kind of just, they just walk off a cliff together because that's where the crowd's going. You're not so much mad at them as you just see how tragic it is. If you ask, did Jesus rise bodily from the dead? This is probably not considered super essential to a pop Christian, even though it was worth dying over to the early church and it's central to the truth of who Jesus is. Like if you love Jesus, you care about these truths about Jesus. Generally, pop Christianity has like a low view of Christ you know, like his, his, his glory, his goodness, his holiness, and they have a low view of sin and they have a high view of self. And these go together. Um, so Christianity actually teaches humility, high view of God's goodness and glory, holiness, Christ, and sort of a low view of self. Like I know I'm made in the image of God, but boy, I've got problems and I need God's grace every day. And I'm saved by his pure kindness. I deserve judgment. These are pretty humbling truths, but they make Christians into people that are a blessing to those around them because they're not arrogant and they're, and they're hopefully God willing, kind and gracious and forgiving to others. But pop Christianity reverses that. Um, it elevates man and it lowers God, so to speak. And ultimately when you, when you really get down to it, like if Jesus isn't strange to you, if Jesus isn't at all intimidating to you, you might be a pop Christian because you look at Jesus and think he's basically me with a beard and longer hair. <laughs> he's like, that's what he's looked like. You know, he kind of is me. He would march in the gay pride parade because I feel that that's a good thing. Right. Forget what he says. Forget what scripture says about any of that stuff. Like there's no real judgment except towards those religious people. They get judged, but nobody else. Because um, Jesus no loves everyone. Jesus loves everybody. And by would... love, we mean accept. Yeah, we mean accept. So this is deeply concerning because the gospel itself is absent in pop Christianity. So the person of Christ is, is a flexible sort of shape changing mirror image of, of sort of an idealized version of self. I'm not discovering him in the Bible. I'm projecting an idealized version of me onto Jesus. Um, but the gospel itself ends up being unnecessary. 
because that kind of judgment would never really happen anyways. So it's favor, God's favor, but without God's grace. It's God's love, but without God's holiness. And so it ends up being a, a lot of problem. Uh, when it comes to authority, the attitude towards scripture is, here's what I, I'm going to, I love to hear your thoughts on this, Alan. My theory is this, their attitude towards scripture is this. Um, if they know very little about the Bible, they'll have a high attitude about the Bible. The more they know about the Bible, the more they realize the Bible doesn't agree with them. That's and so right. they have a low view of the Bible. Yeah. So it's kind of like the higher their, edu their, their education on scripture is, the lower their view of it is because they have to find a way to disagree with it in a lot of important places. Um, and then they become progressives. So I would say pop Christians who are, they aren't, they go to a church that's just really shallow or they're not, you know, they're just kind of like shallow. They wouldn't define themselves very carefully on things, but the ones who uh, have that real low view of the Bible and they just disagree with it, they're now being called progressive Christians. That's the term that is being used by them. Um, they, their ultimate authority is going to be self, uh, not the Bible. Um, it's a hodgepodge of religion. Jesus and the Bible are referenced to some degree, but the real authority is me. Culture and life experience, and then my own sort of opinions thrown in there. Boom, that's my religion. So the religion of pop Christians will always reflect the culture they live in mm -hmm. and not this strange mm -hmm. thing called the Bible mm -hmm. that was written thousands of years ago. It's going to very much reflect the things that they're going through now. Their main concerns are going to be reflected by the main concerns of their political party and not mm. the main concerns of, say, the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. It's it's all going to be like that. Um, true Christianity is not like that, though. It doesn't look like me at all. It's constantly making me change. Jesus is confronting me. I'm like being told I have to shift the way I view these things. So their morality is going to reflect cultural norms, not biblical holiness. Like I said, sex before marriage, not yeah. a big deal because that's cultural norm now. Whereas 100 years ago, the pop Christian would have been opposed to that because culture that's, was opposed to that. That's right. That's right. Not because Jesus was, right? Because culture was. LGBTQ, all that stuff, they're going to be very much on, usually on the, the liberal side of those issues. Yep. Abortion's okay. And it's, it's actually bad. It's actually mean to fight against it, even though from any reading of the scripture, you, you have to be pro-life. Yeah. Like you, you just have to be like, I don't have a choice. This is, yep. this is where the Bible points me. Yeah. Because it's personalized and culturalized, God tends to become an approval machine for you instead of your judge and your Lord. He's, he's the approval machine. And so we have pop Christianity has its favorite pastors, the ones who either champion my political causes that may not be biblical, or they just, they just stay away from anything other than God is for you. God loves, God is going to bless I have a feeling you're not going to give any names. <laughs> yeah. What's that? I have a feeling you're not going to name any of them. <laughs> oh, oh, well, Joel Osteen would be one of them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm not I was a, about to say, yeah. I'm not, yeah. yeah. I, I don't mind stepping in the hot water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, he's, I lose, yeah. 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 if I lose followers, then that's okay. I probably yeah. too many anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. But, um, but I mean, he would be one. I, I, I think he would be one who leans that way, at least. Yeah. Um, maybe he wouldn't call him a pop Christian, but his teaching would appeal to pop Christians, in my opinion. Right. Right. Um, but it tends to be about self-improvement, earthly success, and total acceptance on, on the part of God. That's like the teachings focused. Um, and the authority is always going to be me. It's just so sad. I think for approaching uh, pop Christians, I want to get them reading the Bible more than anything. More than anything. Because when they encounter the real Jesus in Scripture, it's they're, they're going to be like, I didn't know that. Mm. I didn't. And it's like, they're so shallow. This will take them deep. So I just really want them to read the Bible. So I'm going to send, I'm going to send them like 
I'm going to give them a Bible as a gift. Why not buy them a Bible as a gift? Hey, man, they're going to be open to that because they probably have a somewhat high view of scripture. Give them, give them like a easy translation, like new living translation. Give them like a new, new believers Bible, even something that's real simple with little helps. Um, get them reading, send them videos because they won't maybe listen to you, but they might watch a video and listen to that all the way through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They tend to think holiness is rude and God's and righteousness is, 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 um, is offensive. So, you know, that's a challenge to overcome that. Your, your goal is to show them that it's beautiful, show them that holiness is good. Um, there's tremendous persuasion in a confident Christian who's informed and who lovingly stands on the gospel, like where they're not irritated, they're just confident. No, yeah. God is good. God is holy. And that, and that's, that's important to, for us to understand. And, you know, um, yeah, they, they tend to have a strong sense of justice, but a really loose application of what it means. So, yeah. Alan, what do you think? What are your thoughts on these things? Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's very sad, you know, and I've, I've wrestled with this question for years is why is it that some Christians really grow and just take root and, and take off and others just kind of stay right where they are. And I think, I think it comes down to, you know, um, I'll be honest with you guys. The best way I could put it is when you engage with the Bible, it is going to cost you something. It is going, you're going to have to sacrifice something that you, that's going to make you feel good. That's going to make you happy. That's perfect example. Whenever I was a single guy, do you think for one second I enjoyed being celibate? No. Come on, man. Who enjoys being celibate as a single person? Nobody, right? So I had a choice. I could either bend the Bible and make it say what I thought I wanted it to say so that I could have the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And be like, oh, well, that's old school. And where in the Bible does it really say you can't have sex before marriage? I mean, that's, you know, that's Old Testament. And hey, yeah, even if you do, it's not like you're going to go to hell. So it's, you know, I could have made all those excuses. Or I could say, you know what? God, this is what your word says. I don't like it, but it's right here. And I, I mean, I see it so clearly, right? So this is something I think we all have to be on, on guard with is when the Lord reveals something to you in the scriptures, are you resistant towards it or are you receptive towards it, right? Resistant means uh, I want to bend it and make it, make it work with my lifestyle because my lifestyle is here. And that's the reason why a lot of people, they just... They want God, but they don't want too much of God, right? They want they want they want the benefits of God and all of that, but like God don't really require me to do too much. And that, be careful if that describes you. Be careful because the Lord wants all of you. He doesn't just want your finances. He wants your your sexuality. He wants your 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 finances. He wants your relationships. He wants your your heart. He wants your mind. He wants all of you. And we can't compartmentalize our Christian life. Okay, God, I'm going to give you this. But I'm going to remain. I'm going to retain control over this part of my life, and I think that's where I see a lot of people kind of struggling. Is they just they just don't want to release full control to the Lord because they're afraid that if I do, God is going to ask me to give up something that I know I don't want to give up, and so therefore I'm just not going to engage and get that close to God. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, God give us wisdom. I I feel like this is the when I say pop Christianity, I feel like this is the most pervasive and concerning uh, that we want to address. We want to be ready to talk about and try to think of ways to talk about. Like, I mean, I'm planning ways in the future on my own channel on how to reach this group because they're not clicking for Bible teaching. No. But there are certain topics I might be able to cover that would bring them in.
Right. And then maybe connect them to that Bible teaching and then get them deep, That's deep, exactly. you know, and bless them. So, yeah. Well, you, you just un <laughs> you just uncovered my whole plan on YouTube. That's my whole that's my whole that's my whole model, right? Is to yeah. is to do those types of videos, guys. That I hope will get the attention of the average Christian, and then when they get in there, they see, oh, okay, he's got you know videos on how to study the Bible. He's got videos going through the Book of James verse by verse. He's got videos, yeah. you know, this and that. Because Mike and I know that ultimately, yeah, we can do all those trendy videos, and we do them sometimes, but. One thing I do like about Mike as well as myself, like, well, I'll just say this. Uh, well, I'll say, how can I say this? Um, uh, we we understand, you know, people need people need biblical truth. You know, we we do we do trending videos, but we we try to do them with the intent of um, of using those those videos to bring in an audience to take them deeper somewhere else because we know that just doing those pop Christian kind of hot topics isn't going to be enough to grow someone spiritually. They need more than milk. They need meat and that's what they need. Right. Um, and so, um, so, so that's, you know, just, just, uh, you know, just keep us in prayer for that. So guys, um, we've, we've been on here for, I think this is definitely ranks up there as my longest live stream I've ever done on this channel. Man, I did not, yeah, we really thought it was gonna be 90 minutes. I thought, I don't know what made us think that we were gonna get through six, but hopefully this live stream will be a video that in 2025, if you're watching this right now, 2025, right? You'll be able to say, wow, you know, these guys did some video back in 2021 and it's still relevant today. And so um, hopefully you guys got a lot of value out of this. If we weren't pressed for time, I would have st stuck around and did a lot of questions, Q&A and things like that. And I'm sorry, guys, that we just don't have a lot of time to be able to do that. Under normal circumstances, I would have loved to, to take about 15 or 20 minutes and just answer all of your questions. However, do us both a favor. If you do have some pressing questions, Leave them in the chat, uh, not the chat, but leave them in the comments below. And um, I can't promise that I'll answer every one, but I will give you my word that I'll go down there and maybe Michael dedicate some of his time to go in there and just dig. And we'll see if we can answer some of your other questions that you have. Um, but once again, if you have not uh, subscribed to uh, Mike Winger and his channel, um, uh, we encourage you to do that as well as uh, I've got a video on my channel I did about a month ago where I gave uh, the top 10 Christian YouTubers that I follow. And Mike is definitely high on that list and along with uh, nine others and many others as well. So uh, our goal is to get the, the truth into as many hands as possible, whether it comes from me or Mike or Melissa Doherty or, or John McRae or Ruslan or or any, uh, just or even some that are smaller channels. Um, we want to, you know, encourage uh, the, the truth to get out as, as best we can. So uh, thank you so much. And Mike, if you have any final words uh, to kind of um, uh, kind of close us, close us in this time. Um, my encouragement is the two things, the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the scriptures. These are the two things, man, that we want. You know, you want Jesus is your Lord, not just a source of you know, some other thing that you're going at, you're going after, but also the scriptures going to the word of God, knowing what scripture says about topics and, and just giving yourself permission to say, I'm going to believe this over, over all other sources 
out there. Um, that is so powerful and such a blessing into the Christian life. Our goal with these with this video is not to like say, here's six religious groups we want to beat up on. It's rather honestly, here are six communities who we want to see go deeper into the knowledge of God, into the knowledge of Christ, and to know the Word of God. And that's the real agenda here. Um, it could come off, I know, as judgmental because we're because we're like saying, oh, like you're wrong here. But telling people they're wrong when they are actually wrong, that's a grace. That's a kindness. That's a help. Uh, leaving them there and not telling them anything is a passive aggressive slight, <laughs> in my opinion. And so we want to get uncomfortable a bit so we could give blessings to others. And we hope that that's been helpful. Um, thanks, Alan, for bringing me on, man. It's been great to be with you. And uh, I've had a good time. I can't I can't believe how long we, we went, but we're both we're both we both got a lot to say. <laughs> we do. We both have a lot to say. And, uh, and we'll, we'll know that for next time. And guys, it will be a next time. Not anytime soon, but maybe several months from now, Mike and I have a, a plan, an idea to maybe do something else. I'll, I'll uh, let you guys in on that a little bit later, but it, it uh, we'll, we'll circle back a few months from now and we'll see what our schedules are. If you liked this uh, collaboration, if you want to see more, let us know. And um, if you have some topics you want us to cover on our individual channels as well as together, let us know that as well. So God bless everybody. Thank you so much for hanging in with us. Can't believe we still have this many people still on the stream. This is awesome. I love you all so much. Continue to support us and pray for us. And uh, we'll see you next time. God bless. Bye-bye.